Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, a great pleasure to uh, be back with my colleagues on the Blue Ribbon Biodefense Panel. Secretary Schleyer, good to have you back. Good to see you again, Senator Daschle, my colleague, Senator Lieberman, Ken Weinstein, Congressman Jim Greenwood. It's a pleasure to be back again with my colleagues in this uh, rather extraordinary effort that we've undertaken quite some time ago. And we're going to keep pushing forward to see that we can embed as many of those recommendations that came up in our original report as possible over the next several years. Also want to uh, publicly acknowledge the sustained support of the Hudson Institute. They have been great friends and patrons and uh, uh, we're grateful that uh, they've aligned themselves with us and particularly now that they've given us this beautiful facility uh, to be associated with and we're grateful for that as well. Some people may have thought that uh, once the panel met initially and made our report public that we would go away. <laughs> they were wrong. Some people may have. <laughs> we're here to stay. <laughs> we got a lot of work to do. Uh, last year we released a status report in 2016 and uh, we're still not going anywhere because we have still have a, a great deal of important work to do. Uh, we decided when we started this panel, we couldn't tell the government or ask the government, I'll tell you, tell the government any of these days, we couldn't ask the government and the private sector to continue to address the biological threat if we weren't committed to sustaining our effort in both sectors as well. Uh, so we're here today to take up an aspect of biodefense uh, that we only briefly touched on in 2015 and 2016, and that's, the, uh, that's budgeting. There are many programs that make up biodefense. Many of you are connected with some, most, or even all of them. Prevention, deterrence, preparedness, response, attribution, recovery, mitigation, the list goes on and on. And each of them are funded independently, reflecting the same lack of coordination that, uh, well, as Secretary Shaleo and I know, it's pretty tough to get disparate groups under the umbrella of your responsibility to coordinate their activity, even pull together a uh, comprehensive budget. And one of the things we recommended back then in 2015 was that the government unify the budget for biodefense, all biodefense. Frankly, we believe that the siloed approach impairs or reduces the mission effectiveness. It's our belief then, it's our belief now, that's one of the reasons we're having this, uh, this session today. Uh, but it's easier said than done. Uh, undoubtedly, there's some redundancy, there's some gaps, there's some overreach, but we still think a comprehensive plan and approach, including comprehensive budgeting to set priorities, is the best thing for this country to do. So that's exactly why we're here. So we want to thank in advance all the speakers who've given their time to participate with us this morning. And with that, I want to turn it over to my, my good friend and colleague, Senator Lieberman. Senator. Thank you, Governor Ridge, and thanks to everybody for uh, being here. It's great to be um, back in session. Uh, we should say that, and back at the uh, Hudson uh, Institute, we should say that uh, this uh, commission was the idea of a man named Bob Cadillac, uh, who's worked in this field for a period of time. Uh, he's now working with Senator uh, Burr on Capitol Hill. And um, when uh, Governor Ridge and I were approached, we were interested, based on our previous work, obviously he in the White House and his first secretary, 
of Homeland Security and, and me as the chair of the Homeland Security uh, Committee. But one of the things we said was that this uh, commission, uh, our panel, uh, had to be bipartisan, because obviously there's nothing partisan about a, a bioterrorist attack or an infectious disease pandemic. And th this is a wonderfully uh, bipartisan um, uh, organization. We only have six members. We figured out a, a very clever way to expand the commission without expanding it by having associates or affiliates who are really quite impressive over uh, to the right and have contributed enormously to what we've done. So we started at the end of 2014, put out a report, our first in 2015, and then a follow-up in 2016. We're grateful uh, for the support that has enabled us to keep going and even in increase what we're doing, uh, primarily from uh, uh, foundations. And if you ask me to summarize really uh, too simplistically, um, I would say that what we found in our work is that after 9-11, uh, when the fear of uh, terrorism rose, um, and th there was this specific uh, anthrax uh, attack, uh, one of whose targets is our own uh, panel member, uh, Tom Daschle, or his office anyway, um, th that there was a, a rush of legislative and governmental activity. And uh, I would say since then, there's been a certain, um, uh, I'd say, a, a, a inertia that's set in, or maybe in some cases almost atrophying. And during that period of time, the, the threat has grown uh, more real and more serious, both of an infectious disease uh, pandemic. I mean, we continue to see Ebola, Zika, a very deadly uh, flu epidemic uh, related to contact now with birds in China, killing about 40% of the of people who have the disease. And the in clear increasing capability of uh, the terrorists who, who want to strike us to develop uh, biological weapons. So there's a gap. The threat gets worse. The, our, our ability as a government, as a people, to, to uh, see it coming, uh, to prevent it or respond to it um, is not uh, uh, better, not up, to, not up to the threat, and that's what what our what our focus is as we continue to uh, work here today. As Governor Rich said, we're focused on budgeting. Uh, I'll just be very brief to back up what he said. It, it just became clear to us that, as as in so many other areas, there's not coordination across the government and what's being appropriated and spent. Um, in fact, we couldn't even find out from within the government how much money the U.S. government is spending overall on biodefense every year. We actually got an estimate of it from a great group uh, that, um, at the University of Pittsburgh that focuses on this problem of six billion uh, a year. But um, it's not coordinated, as the governor said, and I just want to um, it covers a vast array of federal departments, independent agencies that are funded in part for this, the intelligence community, DHS, HHS, DOD, DOS, FEMA, FBI, EPA, uh, et cetera, uh, et cetera. And uh, I just want to give you briefly two of the conclusions from our uh, 2015 report with an example for each. One is that the lack of a unified budget for biodefense, or at least a unified approach to budgeting across the departments and agencies that essentially operate independently, 
now uh, has uh, really reduced uh, our capacity to um, uh, uh, prevent, uh, deter, and uh, respond to a bioterrorist uh, uh, event. For instance, NIH investments in research regarding biological agents and medical countermeasures are not closely tied enough to the advanced development of procurement requirements at BARDA. If they had been, we may have had an Ebola vaccine or therapeutic when we needed it. Incidentally, we have neither uh, still. Now, second, redundant spending uh, and spending in the absence of comprehensive oversight has probably led to significant fiscal inefficiencies. So at the outset, we're not really asking at this point for more money. We're asking for a unified budget and a better plan to spend it. And an example of that is that for years, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Defense have independently been developing and deploying environmental biodetection uh, technologies. Budget requests and subcommittee appropriations bills have not uh, across uh, um, balanced and coordinated these capabilities to assess uh, funding uh, overlap and therefore achieve efficiencies in realizing the goals. So this is an important uh, session for us in continuing to both oversee and, and uh, try to build support for a better, better American biodefense. We've got a great uh, group of witnesses today, beginning with Congressman Cole, whose uh, presence here we uh, deeply appreciate. And uh, with that, Mr. Chairman, I, uh, I send it back to you. Thank you. Uh, just very briefly to ask any colleagues, although we didn't have it uh, scheduled any opening remarks you care to make, certainly uh, want to defer to you because of your sustained work with us. Okay, very good. Well, then let's wait right on to uh, um, Congressman Tom Cole. Ladies and gentlemen, so as you know, he is the chair of the Subcommittee on Labor, Health, and Human Services Education-Related Agencies, House Committee on Appropriations. That's always a good place to be. I aspired to that for 12 years, but never made it. Uh, member of the House Budget Committee, that's one to which I did not aspire, and glad I never made it. Um, so, uh, Congressman, we're not going to ask you anything about Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. You can keep that preference. But we're grateful to have you here because of that perspectives, appropriations, budget, and the like. Uh, thank you for taking the time, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. It's a great privilege to be here, and believe me, there's no ambiguity on that boomer sooner. So everybody in my state knows it. I'm not going to go ahead and let them know now, and uh, no big surprise. Um, it's a very good day to be here, and my remarks are not really prepared. They're just spontaneous, a couple of off-the-cuff the uh, thoughts. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously, as uh, everybody here is aware, we were able to reach a government uh, funding agreement over the weekend. Uh, the uh, Bill was posted at 2 a.m. last night. I can't tell you I've read it all, but I do know that uh, NIH got a $2 billion increase on top of last year's $2 billion increase. And uh, we also got a $600 million of that went for uh, BioShield. So there's uh, actually substantial movement in the right direction in terms of basic funding. Uh, the problem that you're focused on, and I, let me tell you, I'm very appreciative that you are focused on this problem, uh, is an important one uh, because uh, while we have made in the last couple of years substantial progress in appropriations at NIH and for biodefense, uh, you're still, of course, much more likely to die in a pandemic than a terrorist attack. Uh, and there's not much coordination across the various agencies of government, much thought about this. I also sit on defense approaches, and when I first arrived, sit on uh, the House Armed Services Committee. I don't remember a single hearing 
uh, about uh, biodefense, and, and I'm sure there was one, and I probably missed it, but uh, the, this is very seldom presented in the context of protecting the American people. Uh, and frankly, it's uh, the investments we make at NIH and uh, CDC, again, another agency that got an increase this year, thank goodness, are protections every bit uh, as important in defending the American people as what we do at the Pentagon. The relationship between the two of them needs to be a great deal stronger. Uh, as most of you know, because you follow this intimately, uh, we doubled NIH uh, funding in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then we were flat for a dozen years. And what that meant, uh, just in terms of research projects, was uh, instead of funding one in three grants, we fell to funding one in six. Uh, Senator Blunt, who's my Senate counterpart uh, at Labor H, uh, and I made the decision that we needed to reignite the investment uh, in this area. And so uh, in 2016, uh, we offered a $2 billion increase. Uh, as a matter of fact, to be fair, I think uh, we had $1.1 billion in the House. He had $2 billion in the Senate. The President had a billion, so we added my number to uh, his number and compromised with Blunt at his number. So. Uh, and that's basically the way we've done it all the way through, or and did it again last year. The administration, uh, and I don't say this critically, again, they proposed a billion-dollar increase in 2016, but the last year uh, they proposed for the 17 fiscal year really a, a billion-dollar cut in discretionary funds, substituting a $1.8 billion mandatory fund, so uh, roughly an $800 billion increase. Unfortunately, the Appropriations Committee can't appropriate mandatory funds, and there wasn't any effort going on that we could see uh, for the folks that could at Ways and Means and uh, Energy and Commerce to do that. So we, to us, it looked more like a, a shell game uh, to plus up some areas of the budget. Fortunately, our Democratic colleagues saw it exactly the same way, and this has actually been an area of great bipartisanship where the two parties have been able to work together. We both rejected the President's proposed budget, which I thought pretty easy for a Republican to do, but said a lot of good things about my Democratic colleagues on the committee, and then worked to get this uh, $2 billion increase, making a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hard decisions along the way. I know this panel has an interest in the uh, idea of an emergency response fund. That's something I believe in pretty strongly. And uh, we wrote that into the, uh, the labor bill and uh, had the uh, labor age portion of the bill and uh, had the strong support of Hal Rogers when he was chairman. Unfortunately, nobody else seems to see it that way. Uh, our Senate colleagues, uh, Democrat and Republican, uh, frankly, largely want to uh, uh, just simply uh, have robust reprogramming authority, if you will, for for uh, the director of CDC and uh, hold it that way. And uh, neither the previous administration or the current administration supported us. So that's something that did not survive, uh, particularly once uh, we lost Mr. Rogers as chairman, because that was something that he had uh, a very strong interest in. But I think it's an idea we need to uh, revisit. You know, having watched this uh, uh, you know, in the context of both Ebola and Zika, it's pretty evident to me that uh, you need to be able to respond very, very quickly. Uh, and uh, sometimes this gets caught up in, in uh, a little bit of partisanship or, frankly, just legitimate congressional concern that, hey, you've got piles of money over there. What are you doing with them? What are you? And, and you can lose time. So giving, I think, uh, the professionals at the CDC in particular the ability to respond immediately while they buy time to explain to Congress what to do uh, and why they need it uh, is a legitimate 
uh, need. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, I hope that eventually some administration will come on, because, again, the initiative for this has come from the Congress. Uh, and to be fair, most of the initiatives and the increases in these areas have been congressional, again, in recent years. They've really not come out of the, the executive branch of either party. Indeed, we've got some uh, proposals for the 19 or 2018 uh, budget that are very, very disturbing coming out of the administration. And I think largely because, like most new administrations, they're just learning what to do. But this is an area that, uh, if we were to follow through on OMB's uh, you know, recommendations, we would actually be cutting almost six billion dollars out of NIH. And we don't know yet what the CDC cut would be, but. Uh, it averages about 20% across the board in labor aid, so you, you could guess that. And that's a roughly a little over a $7 billion agency right now. So it would be very substantial. And uh, as I told uh, my good friend, uh, Director Mulvaney, I said, I can guarantee you on your watch, I mean, I hope you don't have a bioterrorist incident, uh, mm -hmm. something we've been fortunate enough to avoid, but uh, I think it's more a matter of, of when, not if. But I, you, I can guarantee you, you'll have a pandemic on your watch. Something will happen someplace in the biosphere that uh, you're going to need to respond to. Uh, and uh, the last thing you want to do ahead of that has, is cut uh, your ability to respond, because I promise you, whether it would have made a difference or not politically, you'll, you'll be held accountable for that. And frankly, you should be, in my view. Um, let me end with just a couple of uh, recommendations, and I'm going to go back to the emergency fund for obvious reasons. Uh, I think uh, that is a tool that we need. It's a tool that uh, I think, uh, you know, the new administration uh, sadly will find out at some point it wishes it had. Uh, the last administration did. Right now, uh, we could get that done, but it's, it's going to take an administration pushing for it. Uh, second, uh, I know this uh, panel has looked at advanced funding. I would very much <laughs> favor doing that in these particular areas. That's always a tough thing to do, uh, to bite the bullet. But again, um, you know, you don't have a lot of time uh, when a bad day arrives in this area. So the ability for the executive branch to have plan with continuity is, is uh, great. Uh, there's always a temptation in this area. Uh, to rob Peter to pay Paul. And, uh, you know, in 2004, many of you were in the Congress at that point, and obviously, Governor, you were in the administration. Uh, Congress authorized uh, uh, the BioShield program and, and gave it 10 years' worth of funding at, at uh, about $5.6 or $7 billion, if I remember correctly. That was a very smart thing to do. Uh, you know, last year, we were basically finishing that out, and uh, we, uh, uh, the uh, 2015 appropriation was at $510 million. I think uh, the administration proposed uh, 350, uh, and we fortunately raised them to 600. So we not only met what had been, but added to it. And again, that's a bipartisan congressional commitment. So in an era when Congress, uh, you know, uh, gets kicked around pretty good, sometimes with a great deal of credit, this is actually an area that's been pretty easy to bring Republicans and Democrats together on and to actually make tough decisions and make the investment. So advanced funding uh, uh, would be my next uh, recommendation. My last one would be uh, one that is not so much uh, something you can write in law, but to build in the concept of sustained increases in these areas. You know, a lot of this is just infrastructure, the capacity to respond. Uh, and that's what we have allowed to erode for about, a, a, you know, 12 years until we restarted this cycle again. 
when I talk to experts at both the CDC and particularly the NIH, uh, they say if we just knew we were going to have three or four percent increases, we're not talking about outrageous. But the worst thing are these things where you know it it pours for a year and then it stops. I actually think the increase we got this year was more important than the increase we got last year. I know Senator Blunt. Uh, shares that opinion. Uh, the idea being, let's get back in the habit of doing the right thing so that people just automatically expect, oh gosh, you know, yes, we're going to increase here. It's not that much money. Uh, you know, with the uh, baseline after this year will be $34 billion at NIH and a little less than $8 billion at CDC. This is minuscule compared to what we spend uh, appropriately in defense. I'm not critical of that, but this is every bit as much. Uh, a defense allocation if you look at defending the lives of the American people. And it's one that pays off tremendously uh, down the line, pays off economically, pays off in terms of maintaining, uh, again, a biomedical research infrastructure and response infrastructure because you can't create it the day you need it. Uh, and uh, this idea, again, of building in uh, the, the Congress and hopefully the executive branch will each year propose some sort of modest increase. And if Congress has to make some tough decisions along the way, well, that's what everybody gets paid to do. Believe me, in a $4 trillion budget, you can find the money to do what we need to do in this particular area. So with that, uh, be happy to take any questions that you have. Thank you, Congressman. Uh, Secretary Shalala. Yeah, thank you for your remarkable, strong support for both the agencies as well as the subject matter. I have uh, two quick questions to ask you to comment on. One is the role of FDA. You don't have jurisdiction over FDA, which is part of the problem. You have to have a conversation with agriculture appropriations. Um, but it seems to me that they, foodborne illnesses is part of this in terms of transmission. And second, about the role of the states, because one of the things that was very clear in the Ebola outbreak was that the weakness over time of state public health infrastructures and local public health um, is a real challenge, and the federal government really has a role there, and I was wondering whether you comment on those two. Yeah, I, I don't know that I have a particularly intelligent comment to make about the FDA. As you say, I don't have, uh, don't have jurisdiction, so frankly, this is one where we count on the experts to be talking to one another inside the executive branch. But, uh, you know, congressionally, it's not something that, uh, honestly, we've spent probably the time on that we should. Uh, in terms of the public uh, health infrastructure at the state level, I think Ebola showed how weak it really is and how uneven it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, without picking on other people, let me just pick on my own home state. I mean, uh, uh, we work pretty closely, obviously, with our public health department because they have informed comment on what they need nationally. Disturbing to me when I found out that 60 percent of their budget was coming from us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're more than happy. Uh, there is a very important role here to play, and the CDC in particular does a tremendous job in sort of best practices, training seminars, bringing people together. Uh, but the idea that we would be paying over half the budget for public health for any state, you know, suggests to me at the state level, certainly in my state, uh, we've just simply uh, not doing our part of the job. We're, re we're, we're expecting the federal government to come in and basically do it all. And uh, again, my, my state director, who was a very fine professional, came to visit with me when he read, honestly, President uh, Trump's initial proposal. And he said, let me show you what this will do to us in terms of just having basic protections at the state level. 
Uh, again, that's true, of course, across the budget level. Again, my state, the state budgets, they appropriate around seven or eight billion dollars. The real budget's about twenty-five billion, and about ten billion of that comes from the federal government. And I suspect if you went state after state after state, and you start looking at Medicaid and all the other things we do, we run a deficit so a lot of other states can have balanced budgets. Because, uh, and particularly again in my state, in an energy state, where you get these incredible booms and busts and uh, revenue, we end up becoming the most stable part of the state budget quite often. I'm sure North Dakota is going through something similar, uh, you know, all the energy states are. But uh, again, these dollars are extraordinarily important, uh, and we need to do what we can to incentivize uh, uh, states to invest more. Senator Daschle? Sure, thank you. Uh, Congressman Cole, I, I want to thank you for your eloquent uh, statement and uh, your observations and all of the the, the work that you have put into this issue. We greatly appreciate your leadership. I'd like to explore a little bit more the comments you made about multi-year funding and advanced funding and the importance of it. As you correctly noted, uh, we were successful in 2004 in creating a 10-year uh, program that uh, had extraordinary impact and creating a level of confidence and partnership between the public and the private sector, especially for stockpiling medical countermeasures. We don't have that capacity today. And I think from the medical countermeasure point of view in particular, unless we have that multi-year confidence, we're not going to be able to, to have the ability to, to ensure that we'll have the the capacity to address whatever emergencies we will be facing. Could you give us a little better understanding of the internal dynamics right now? Why is that? It seems like such a logical uh, assertion, a logical fact that, that, uh, that this just makes sense uh, for all kinds of reasons, and yet there's resistance and there's an intransigence. We haven't been able to renew that 10-year approach. What, what is behind it? What, as you talk to your colleagues and as you try to assess just why the challenge? Uh, enlighten us a little bit more on what the circumstances are inside. Well, as you would know far better than me, uh, the more sensible the suggestion, the less likely it is to happen in, <laughs> in Washington, D.C. But uh, I think in this case, uh, the difficulties all hinge around, uh, you know, the basic problem we have in budgeting and deficits and the desire for everybody to have as much flexibility as possible. Um, because we're governing way too much on a year-to-year -year ad hoc basis. Uh, the pro these kinds of programs, of course, all come out of the discretionary account and, uh, accounts, and those accounts have been under enormous pressure, really, since the uh, Budget Control Act in 2011. I'm not arguing against it because it helped us cut the budget deficit in half. But, uh, uh, you know, we've there's been a lot of valiant efforts up on the Hill, but until you actually deal with entitlement spending, you're going to find it distorting everything on the discretionary side of the budget over and over again. We're spending less money on the discretionary accounts in total than we were when uh, George Bush was president of the United States. Uh, and so, again, uh, most of the gains we've got, and to be fair, not all of them, uh, because we had things, we had some revenue, too, the things like the fiscal cliff that actually generated some extra money. And, and we've, so we've incrementally whittled away at the deficit problem. But I would argue in program after program, uh, and you see it in defense, for instance, where now all of a sudden 
we just squeeze too much and we're coming back now and we're going to do some correction in that. But uh, to me, all these problems get down to not being willing to sit down and talk about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid in a serious way. Until you do that, uh, you know, we're not going to get down to being very sensible here. And and everybody is going to try and save, uh, you know, try to avoid long-term commitments because they'll almost certainly have some sort of short-term funding crisis. And this is an easy place to rate because in any given year, you know, stockpiling things as proposed to providing things, it's it's sort of like, well, who cares about that? But, uh, you know, uh, somebody needs to be Joseph talking to the pharaoh, the president, and say, look, seven good years and then something bad's going to happen. So there are times to stockpile. Uh, and uh, this is one where, you know, when a bad day comes, it will be horrific. Uh, you know, we will lose either through a pandemic or, uh, God forbid, a bioterrorist attack, uh, you know, a, many, many multiply. And once something like that's released, you know, it can spread a lot further, a lot faster. And the panic that goes with it uh, would be terrible. So this is, again, a place where you really need to make the investments early. And, uh, and I'm proud, again, my colleagues, within the lim political limits they live within and the, and the Congress on both sides of the aisle have been willing to do that, uh, have been willing to go beyond even what administrations uh, have been willing to uh, ask for. And I think that's uh, that, to me, is an interesting phenomenon because you would think the executive branch would be uh, you know, more focused on these types of things and, and be able to sustain focus in a way that Congress hasn't. But at least in recent years, Congress actually deserves the credit here and uh, not the blame. Thank you. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. And, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for being here, for your support, and for the clarity of your comments. I appreciate it. I want to follow up uh, on uh, what Senator, where Senator Daschle was going, but from the point of view of the industry. So uh, the companies that, that, that come up with these medical countermeasures are small biotech companies for the most part. And um, most of them are not publicly traded. They rely upon the willingness of venture capitalists to invest in them. Now, investing in a biotech company is a crazy thing to do to begin with because 90% of our projects fail and 90% of our companies go out of business. So when you're going to contemplate making an investment in one of these companies, knowing that your only customer is the federal government, it's not going to be the demand in the public and the health uh, community to, to acquire the, these, these products, it's only going to be the, the certainty that the federal government will do that. And so um, when that that certainty um, dissipates, um, then the investment dissipates. And once you, once these companies go away, it's really pretty difficult to put the pieces back together again. So my question is, do you, to what extent, if any, do you think that your colleagues uh, on the committee and, and, and your professional staff understand that dynamic? I, th I think actually the professional staff and, and most of my colleagues understand it very well that are on the subcommittee. And I think when you have an opportunity to talk to the full committee, all of them have some sort of problem that's similar in an area where there's places that, uh, you know, we really are the only market as a federal government, uh, where we really are asking people to make extraordinary investments and take risks, and they're not sure whether or not we're a reliable partner and we're the only partner they have. So people get it there. Where I find uh, my problem is once you get outside the Appropriations Committee into the budget process, and uh, you know, uh, you know, 
Governor Ridge uh, said he, he never had the, the privilege of going on the budget committee. Just so you know, Governor, I'm a draftee, not a volunteer. I mean, the, the Appropriations Committee has uh, three representatives, and I got sent a long time ago. And so um, that's why I'm there. But, uh, for instance, right now we're struggling with writing the 2018 budget, and we have a very substantial uh, defense increase. I agree with that. Uh, the president wants to offset uh, this where he can. I think that's a wise and prudent thing to do. Uh, the challenge is he wants to do it all in non-defense discretionary and not spread it over the entire budget. In other words, leaving out 70-odd percent where entitlements are at. And uh, that just becomes unfeasible. This is a long way around to your question, but, you know, basically, and in addition to defense, uh, you know, he's put forward increase in funding in veterans. Nobody's against that. He's put forward increased funding for homeland defense. That's probably a good thing to be doing. Uh, but then that means all the other cuts are going to have to come out of about nine bills that cumulatively have about $400 billion in them. And that would be, you know, $60, $65 billion worth of cuts out of $400 billion. When that, if that happens, then... I guarantee you, uh, you might not see exactly what was proposed in the president's budget, but you're going to see major cuts in these areas. There's just no way around it if that happens. Talking to members of the budget committee who are just looking at uh, uh, big numbers and trying to wrestle down a deficit and explain to them what the consequences are, uh, that's really hard. That's really hard because they don't really understand it down to this level of detail, and yet they're going to pick the top discretionary line that we have, and the president will get what he wants largely in defense, and if that line stays flat, then these cuts are coming. They'll just, uh, it'll, you know, we'll try and manage them in different ways. Well, again, if you're a business person on the outside looking in, and, you know, my money comes from this, and they all have smart guys like you advising them, so... Uh, they figure out pretty quickly, well, again, that does, that is a cautionary flag. Uh, that, and, and it should be from a business standpoint. But from our standpoint as a country, again, you lo start losing infrastructure. You start losing researchers. You start losing uh, people that can produce the product. And when the day comes that you need it, uh, you need it right now. You don't have 18 months to ramp up, you know, production and all this, this sort of thing. Uh, so, um, uh, and these, as you know, these stockpiles have to be periodically replaced. It's not like this stuff is good forever, you know, uh, and you're sort of lucky when you get to dispose of it because it means you didn't have to use it. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But uh, again, uh, that, there has to be some assurance that there's going to be sustained investment if we're going to get the private investment that we, we absolutely have to have. Well, it's very heartening to hear that your colleagues do understand that dynamic and dollars are are tight and we understand only that. on the appropriations committee <laughs> i'm not sure my leadership does and i can assure you a lot of my conference doesn't and again that's not that they're focused you know you live within your committee uh you know not your conference that's really what defines most life for most members uh, unless you're in leadership so unless your leadership really understands this uh and as well you know then you know again you start seeing a lot of decisions that trickle down into the appropriated spaces, particularly non-defense appropriations, that have real consequences. I think the people making them very seldom have much idea of what the consequences are going to be, where the rubber meets the road, and that's what appropriations is. We'll focus there. Thank you. Ken? Thank you. <coughs> Mr. Chairman, thanks for being here today thank you. and sharing your insights. Very valuable, and thank you for your leadership in the area. Um, 
I just want to sort of have a broader back and forth about uh, about the budgeting process. I have a red light here. Does you that need a green one. No, you want green. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of red lights around. Ah, there it is. Don't it's worry. Green. <laughs> Thank you. Is that better? Okay. Um, so one of the the main themes of our two reports and also our deliberations has been the need to sort of coordinate government's activities across the board in this area. And as you mentioned, as uh, Governor Ridge mentioned, there's been stovepiping. There's been a little bit of a drift for a number of different historical reasons, but partly because there's stovepiping within the government on the sort of whole biodefense range of activities. And so we've, you know, recommended there be a strategy. That's now um, the strategy be drawn up. That's now in law. Um, we actually made a fairly unprecedented recommendation that the vice president's office sort of take point to be sort of the central coordinating or play the central coordinating function within the executive branch. And then when it comes to Congress and appropriations, we've talked about the idea of having a, a unified biodefense budget uh, along the lines of what they have for the intelligence community. Um, there, there's a balance to be struck there, right? So for every pet issue or project, you can't have a unified budget. We've looked at this and thought, though, you know, the, the situation we're facing here in biodefense, because this, the number of different disparate functions that are implicated within the executive branch, the number of different players, the number of different committees on the Hill, that it would make sense to do that. I want to get your thoughts about whether you think that's a sensible idea, is it a practical idea, and um, either way, can you think of another alternative or another structure that might uh, you know, achieve our same purposes? Well, it's eminently sensible. I'm not sure it's politically practical, uh, again, because you're crossing so many jurisdictional lines, which is your problem. And, uh, uh, but uh, a lot of the gentlemen on the, on the dais with you know how difficult it is to convince any committee to surrender any jurisdiction on anything. Um, so, uh, and no better than others, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's particularly difficult, um, it, you know, in, in this area in some ways, because so much of this, I mean, look, the NIH and the CDC's main business is not, you know, biodefense. That's part of their business, but their main business is something else, but they are absolutely integral, uh, to, uh, to this particular thing. So it's not, uh, you know, they, they cross a, a civilian defense line that makes it extremely difficult. And I'm not sure I want, uh, with all due respect to my friends uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, want them making too many decisions in this area because, again, they don't hear a lot about this. They're mostly educated on other things. Make about as much sense for them to, to do that as it would for, uh, you know, another committee to decide what, you know, what, what's the appropriate uh, cost of a, of a deep strike bomber or something like that, that, that again, aren't dealing with those issues every day. So uh, it's a problem. I, the, to me, the, the, uh, the real thing is you probably put your finger on it, is to get focused within the executive branch. And then you've got to have somebody uh, that can follow up in the various committees. Uh, I think uh, if you actually could... Uh, establish some sort of, you know, regular biodefense working group uh, inside Congress and get the appropriate members uh, off of the relevant committees. And that's something, you know, leadership can do those kinds of things when it chooses to do it. Uh, and, uh, you know, issue a, a series of recommendations and a mechanism to coordinate across committee lines. But I don't think you're apt to, to get a biodefense component one place because, again, you know, we don't have a, just a single biodefense agency. You have a whole mechanism out there. 
the, the idea of a working group. So that would just be something the leadership would set up, yeah, working group I, across the committees? I probably need to think about this because, to be fair to you, I'm just giving you an ad hoc, off-the-cuff mm -hmm. response, and I'd, I'd be more than happy to think it through. Uh, but uh, now I, you know, I would prefer something more substantive, but I honestly don't know exactly what it would be. Um, uh, if, again... You know, the relevant chairman, uh, uh, you know, let's say uh, the chairman of House Appropriations, the uh, chairman certainly of defense and, and uh, uh, you know, Homeland got together and said, okay, let's get members of our committee that have an expertise in this area and have them come to us with a, you know, integrated budget across committee lines uh, and do our best to do it. I mean, I, I think that it needs to be tasked in some way legislatively. Uh, right now, it's just simply left to who happens to be the chairman and what their level of interest or knowledge is about this. Uh, again, I had a lot of good chairmen before me, but they, you know, they had different focus. Uh, and uh, there certainly were great people over in the Senate, but Roy Blunt's focus, I mean, we got very lucky here in terms of just the alignment of interest on this issue, uh, and the fact that Senator Blunt and I had a you know a very close working relationship from his time in the House, it's one of his deputy whips. I told him it's just like the old days. I'm still doing what you tell me to do, uh, but uh, he's uh, you know he's he's a really thoughtful guy. But you really are a little bit at mercy of who happens to be thrown up in the seniority system in these committee spots at a given time. That's just the way Congress works. But uh, the executive branch is more likely to have sustained focus on something than Congress is. Appreciate that. Good food for thought. Thank you, sir. Thanks, uh, Governor. Um, thanks, Congressman. Your testimony's been great. Your recommendation's really good, really helpful to us. So l let me just pick up um, briefly on where uh, Ken was, um, because clearly one of the things we're thinking about on this panel is a unified uh, biodefense uh, budget. So we know what we're spending. We can try to avoid inefficiencies. We'd obviously like to try to do it in a way that doesn't seem to strike at the uh, authority of different um, uh, subcommittee chairs or chairs on the um, full committee chairs in, in Congress. Um, what if we approached it a different way and we, and we required uh, OMB to present a unified biodefense budget. Um, at, at least then we would have a government estimate of, well, first, how much we're spending every year on biodefense, and then the second, presumably they'd, they, they might be nudged to um, make some um, uh, changes that would uh, create less overlap and more efficiency. Uh, you know, that to me is a very sensible suggestion. Uh, because, again, and you'll build up over time institutional expertise below the director level at OMB that will be there. This will be somebody's account, and they'll be there for, you know, a considerable period of time. So uh, that, that would make a lot of sense. And it would make it a lot easier from Congress's standpoint, too. Right. Again, uh, you know, you're pretty, uh, pretty focused on your own jurisdiction when you're a subcommittee chairman, and I'm not looking over, uh, you know, the fences at, at uh, what other guys are doing very well. So... Uh, making sure that what I'm doing at Labor H or what my successor does uh, lines up with what's happening at the Department of Defense, or that would be wonderful. I mean, that would that would actually be a very helpful metric and tool, uh, and I think would actually force Congress to look at it that way. And and right now we really aren't required to do that. 
Thanks. Just one more quick one, and uh, it's a big question, but I'll accept a short answer, which is last week, um, uh, Tom Ridge and I were in uh, Atlanta, and we spoke to a convention of local, actually goes back to your discussion with your folks in Oklahoma, local uh, emergency uh, response people, public health officials, et cetera. And I would say that there was a, um, a, high, a level of high anxiety about where the Trump administration was going in these areas because of the, the first budgetary uh, indications, uh, both in terms of this year, but then the so-called skinny budget or the outline budget for 2008. Uh, and I'm, I'm interested in, and I, I understand that this is, a, this is a very new administration. I don't know if you've heard, they just passed their first 100 days. Did, had you heard that? <laughs> uh, whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah. So right. <laughs> I don't want to inspire Governor Rich to do his impersonation of the president. <laughs> it's really quite good. Um, huge. <laughs> so what's your sense? I mean, I, th there's a certain learning curve here, of course, although you've got Congressman Mulvaney in there, so he had something to do with it before. But wh what's your sense of how biodefense will do under the Trump administration? It depends on how quickly they get educated. I, and I think... Um, you know, uh, trying to be politically candid without be being politically self-eviscerating. Uh, you know. we, we've been there. Yeah, I know. And, uh, it's a narrow bridge. I, I'm still dancing on hot coals. You guys have been liberated. Um, <laughs> seriously, um, look, I, I would hope... This is an area, and look, Mick's my friend, and uh, we served on the budget committee together, um, and uh, I have enormous respect for him. But this is one where you need to be extraordinarily careful about not being penny-wise and pound-foolish. It really is. Uh, and I look at the skinny budget, and, you know, the president said he didn't want to touch entitlements, you know, uh, President said he wants to increase defense. Uh, there's nothing left but non-defense discretionary to get that out of. So, I mean, I think it was pretty slapdash effort. Um, uh, most first budgets or no new administrations are. Uh, we complicated their problems by uh, not finishing the 17 budget when we should have. That's Congress's fault. That was a deliberate decision by by uh, my leadership, and I think it was a wrong decision. I mean, they, they, the idea was that uh, we would give the new administration more leverage on the 17 budget. Uh, frankly, there's no way it should be riding the budget for the year in which it arrives. It's got to get a cabinet appointed, got to roll out their agenda, got to get their own people in place, and got to produce a budget for 18. And nobody ever gets it done on time, which is the middle of February. President Obama didn't. Obviously, this president didn't. The next one won't either. It's impossible but to complicate it by saying, um, oh, and by the way, we want to know what you think about this trillion-plus dollars that we're doing this year. It, it puts them in a bad spot. Uh, looking to next year, um, it's going to be very interesting to me because, again, no president gets their budget. As a matter of fact, Mick, of all people, will know this. He used to put President Obama's budget on the floor and dare Democrats to vote for it, and they never did. It never got a single Democratic vote, the Democratic president's budget. Now I suspect he's going to have that same opportunity uh, himself and see his budget placed on the floor. Uh, by uh, by the opposite party, and we'll see how, how many supports it gets. So you have to look at the budget to be fair. Uh, as And I used to work for Governor Keating. I'm a great friend of Governor Ridge as, as political strategist and legislative liaison. 
And um, you know, our budgets were never more than an opening position in a negotiation. We didn't expect to get them, and I don't think they expect to get theirs. And indeed, they expect us in some areas to save them from themselves uh, at, at our cost, because they'll claim the high ground of we're being fiscally responsible here, and then they'll quietly whisper, please don't do exactly what we asked you to do. Um, and I've already had that experience. The real question is, will somebody deep down uh, or in, in, in the White House and a critical player in the administration pick this up uh, and decide that there's going to be a focus uh, and pay attention uh, on it. Now, from the standpoint you're coming at it, uh, obviously, uh, you know, biodefense, I mean, Homeland Security would be the perfect place uh, for, for that to happen. And uh, fortunately there you've got uh, a great professional in General Kelly, whom many of us know, and I think the president's going to be well advised. I would hope, too, in the administration, somebody, and I've had this discussion, uh, you know, with a couple of members, of the senior members of the White House, um, look, you ought to pick up NIH and CDC and make them your own. Uh, we're going to put more money there if there's any way we can do it in a Republican Congress. Uh, and this is something that is, uh, you know, uh, not only absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, our forebearers saw that in, in the Gingrich years and double this and, you know, and they did it in a bipartisan way. This is something that, that you actually can work, you can unite people around. It's not a divisive issue. It's actually something people want us to do. And in the, in the case of the president, I would actually argue it's really good politics because it would be really unexpected. And uh, you, you would, I think, get a bipartisan acclaim. I think you would find a lot of support for this in places that don't uh, normally support uh, President Trump. Now, I'm not arguing we should do this from a political perspective, but I am arguing there are political benefits to doing it. So the real question is who becomes the key player in doing that? It's interesting to me, again, in the late 90s uh, under President Clinton and the early 2000s under President Bush, the initiative came from Congress. Honestly, it didn't come from the administration. And there's a lot of good people there who did a lot of good things, but it was really driven by Congress. Uh, and the same thing, strangely enough, has happened again, uh, at least uh, now for two years in a row. Uh, but uh, I've been surprised that successive administrations have not seen the wisdom in doing this and making it national policy in the way that, you know, John F. Kennedy made, you know, we're going to be in the space race and we're going to get there, national policy. This doesn't have an end goal like that. And as a matter of fact, I would avoid doing that. But I think making a national commitment to, uh, to you know, build up the institutions that protect us from everything from pandemics to, to bioterrorism uh, is not a bad thing for something to do, for some president to do. And I think it would be well-received. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need some things around here to work on together. we got plenty of things to fight about. There's no shortage of those. Uh, real, you know, political geniuses, where do you find the, the point where you actually can do something productive where you overlap. And I would suggest there's no area of overlap that's nearly as good as this. It's everything from, uh, you know, everybody's got a friend that has cancer or a family member or knows that or Alzheimer's to, my gosh, what does happen when Ebola or Zika strikes and there will be something like that again, or God forbid, uh, you know, something gets in it. You know, we know there are people who will use dangerous things. Some of them control governments. The president just acted against that. Uh, some others, you know, have, are these shadowy, uh, you know, transnational terrorist figures. And if we don't think they're not thinking about how to do this, we're kidding ourselves. 
So, uh, again, I would just make sure when the unthinkable or the unexpected but the inevitable happens uh, that we be ready. And, uh, uh, you know, that just takes sustained investment, a sustained commitment, and focus. And uh, Congress is in the mood to make the investments, or at least it has been the last couple of years. So this would be a good time for an administration to seize the opportunity, in my view, and do something that would be long-lasting, that would be uh, substantial, uh, and, and frankly would be ultimately politically popular. Uh, thanks for that answer. That, that was really uh, great. And uh, I think a real call to action in the national interest. Uh, we're lucky to have you there. The country is lucky to have you there as a voice uh, for, um, for public health and specifically uh, for biodefense. Thanks, Congressman. Governor, may I have a, a, a to give some more thought about how we could get closer to unified budget. One of the first briefings I received uh, right after I got to the White House before we created the department was uh, uh, on pathogens that you know, the terrorists or nation states might use. One was Ebola. Now, this is 2001. Since that time, NIH and CDC organizations that everybody in this panel respects enormously because of the extraordinary work they do got billions and billions of dollars. And although our intelligence community had said, be careful of Ebola in 01, we weren't ready for it more than a decade later. So the passion we have about something close to a unified budget is based upon, and again, our experience on the Hill. BioWatch's Homeland Security, frankly, that program hasn't worked for the last couple years, but everybody keeps funding it. We don't have medical countermeasures. We don't have the capacity to encourage the private sector to build capabilities, vaccines, and antidotes and the like because there's no market. But I remember ship shafting being preserved for nuclear submarines because you wanted to build the redundant capacity way back when I was a young congressman in case you'd have the surge. We know the public health infrastructure isn't as updated as it should be. We know not all hospitals, not, they all have to be all prepared for the same thing that building centers of excellence. So one of the real concerns we have, and I think you've alluded to it, you keep referring back to the executive branch, and we happen to like that, because we think if there was somebody empowered in the executive branch, we like the vice president to oversee, work with OMB, work with the but work with various chairmen. So I just wanted to, to, to plant that seed and uh, kind of forewarn you that as we try to aggressively move toward this creating an epicenter for strategic reasons, operational reasons, and budget reasons in the White House, because you said it, all these things live within the committees, and you and I both know how tough it is for committee chairs, president, chairman to, to do their own thing. But I, I appreciate your candor in that regard. I think we all understand the political realities. We'd like to figure out a way for Congress at least to move closer to a unified budget, but at the same time, try to get the executive branch paying a heck of a lot more attention, because at the end of the, at the very end, you said at the outset, this is a matter of national defense. And it's not a half a trillion dollars that we're looking for. We're just looking for the capability to diagnose, build the infrastructure, and respond and recover. So, Jim, just, just a, a quick follow-up. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Senator Lieberman suggested that maybe what we need to do is have a congressional mandate for some, to the OMB to put together this unified budget. And having never served on the, either the Budget Committee or the Appropriations Committee, what would be the legislative route for that, given the divided uh, jurisdictions? Uh, you, you know, probably the easiest thing uh, would be to put uh, report language in first. You always try to suggest before you try to legislate. Uh, and see if you could focus the executive branches that, that, you know, basically tell them, we need this information from you and direct them to provide it. And I think from, yeah, you could do it in the approach committee or the budget committee, more likely the approach committee, quite frankly, uh, you know, and just say we need to, matter of fact, you know, that's something we'd be more than happy to work on you with because we, you know, our, our bill for next year would actually be a pretty good place to lodge that to at least begin to start the effort. Um, let me go back to one quick point that Senator, uh, Governor, excuse me, you have so many senators up there, it's pretty dazzling. But Governor, you're there by yourself, you know. I, yeah, and uh, that's right. And uh, But a uh, point that the governor made, um, you were pointing out that uh, Ebola was identified early, you know, as a national security threat. I happened to be out at NIH when they were working on that, and they were going through a tour, and I met uh, the woman who devised ultimately the uh, vaccine. And uh, she showed me in her notebooks in 1991 the key breakthrough. Here it is. I think this will do it. And I think it was 91. It was the early 90s. And yet there was no money to do that until, you know, Ebola actually breaks out in West Africa. Now, if there was a national defense imperative, somebody should have been telling somebody at the NIH, if you've got anything, because, I mean, literally, this person had done the key breakthrough work, but there hadn't been the money for the clinical trials and the tests and all that sort of thing that you have to have. And yet the solution was sitting there. We could have had it you know, not in a crash program. Thank goodness she had that work, because that's why the crash program worked. But the point is, it, if, 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 if they had been aware or they somehow the right hand knew what the left hand was doing enough to say, this is now a national defense imperative, so if this is one of the things you're considering it, you know, it's got to be right up there with cancer or whatever else you're working on, get us this, because we think this is a weapon that can be deployed against the United States of America, and if we've got an idea, we want to be as ready as we possibly could, just like we would for anything else. But uh, that, to me, is a very interesting point. I was not aware that that had been identified from a defense standpoint as a national uh, a national uh, priority. And uh, yet, again, we had it sitting out there and in many ways, could have had it funded, uh, would have been enormously helpful in West Africa from the get-go, probably saved lots of lives, but more importantly, or as importantly, would have provided a layer of defense for our own country uh, at the point we needed it, so. Yeah, one of the challenges then was that we were focused on AIDS and trying to find, so you could see the competing priorities. You're exactly right. There's never enough, and you know, that's again one that obviously is the right thing to do. Boy, you want to talk about something's paid enormous diplomatic dividends for the United States and Africa was PEPFAR, you know, and the investments this country made. Do, do, done us more good than anything else probably in a generation in convincing people, uh, you know, that hey, maybe America's a pretty good place and very interested in us. and. You know, this, this is uh, every bit a tool for us in diplomacy. It's, it's something we do better than anybody else in the world. Nobody can compete with us. And when you deploy it for humanitarian reasons, as we did in Africa, the payback 
in human lives, first and foremost, but then the payback politically and diplomatically is just enormous. So but the investment created a market, too, that keep the drug companies, it gave them both volume and gave us price right. because of that investment. Perfect example of the point you've been making. Congressman, we thank you. Thank you very much. political process and the policy process. So, uh, uh, Ron, thank you very much for being here. We look forward to your testimony. Uh, thank you, Governor. And uh, before I start, just three quick uh, prefatory remarks. First of all, I want to just thank this group for its ongoing work and uh, for the bipartisan nature of that work. Uh, this is a thankless task, and this is a time in which bipartisanship is not in vogue here in Washington. But to see this group work this way, I think, is a very important thing. Uh, secondly, my remarks can be a little broader than just the budgetary issues. I think it's hard to just isolate those issues, but I will address them. And finally, I'm going to not really differentiate between our response to intentional spreads of infectious diseases, bioterrorism, and the natural spread of those diseases, because I actually think that division, that stovepiping, is one of the things that's holding us back from an effective response. So I'm going to try to address them uh, together. For this expert group, I'm not going to belabor the stakes uh, involved here. But I do believe that, uh, sadly, sometime during this president's tenure, uh, his national security team is going to be summoned to the Oval Office and have to discuss a catastrophe of historic proportions with the president. 
uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in a remote corner of the world, sparking the fall of foreign governments, giving rise to violent regional conflict, fight over scarce resources, a refugee crisis as victims flee and seek a safe place. And the president may well be told that we're still, uh, the United States could be the next place that sees such death and destruction. Now, a lot of things could cause that kind of crisis, a terrorist act, a dirty bomb, some kind of famine or other kind of climate-based crisis. But of all those things, the single most likely cause is an epidemic. And indeed, compared to all the other threats we face, nothing in human history has taken more lives than infectious disease. So I think it's right for this group to be focused on this and to be focused on this paramount national security threat. Um, for most Americans, that picture may seem like science fiction or would have seemed like science fiction until the hint we got of this in the Ebola epidemic of 2014, 2015, uh, that which gave the broader lay public a bit of a sense of the risk we face as a country and as a world. Now, people are gonna be studying that epidemic for a long time, but I think already there are three lessons from it that we can take and build into our thinking. The first is that it didn't have to be as bad as it was. Ebola outbreaks are inevitable. There had been 23 of them before 2013. This was the first Ebola epidemic. Now, why? Well, because the world wasn't ready, because our response organizations did not do a good job, because WHO really was asleep at the switch. But uh, so clearly, these kinds of threats uh, uh, don't have to happen. They don't have to get out of control. Secondly, if the epidemic wasn't inevitable, its reversal also was not inevitable. Uh, there is no sure thing when something like the Ebola epidemic happens. And indeed, in October of 2014, just before I took my job as the White House Ebola Response Coordinator, the CDC forecast that there would be a million deaths due to Ebola. Now, even that forecast actually understated the threat because it was just limited to the three West African nations, didn't forecast the possibility of the disease spreading to other nations and it being even worse. Now, in the end, of course, the epidemic was tragic, but claimed 11,000, 12,000 lives, much less bad than that worst-case scenario. Now, why? What, what resulted in uh, significant improvement over the worst-case scenario? Well, the people of West Africa deserve the most credit. They made the tarred uh, cultural changes. They took courageous acts to fight this disease. But a global response played a critical effort. And the United States deserves credit as the leader of that response. President Obama made some very difficult and courageous decisions to send 3,000 troops to West Africa to build up our domestic response, to do the things we needed to do. But it was a bipartisan response. And uh, in that regard, Congress acted promptly to the president's request and funded it generously and provided the resources needed on a bipartisan basis to fight Ebola, both at home and overseas. And that was a critical element of it. And third, most important, most important lesson is that we as a country and a world have a long way to go before we're ready for the truly serious threat. In some ways, Ebola was a relatively easy test case for our response systems. It's a hard disease to transmit. It broke out in three relatively small countries that don't really send lots of travelers to the rest of the world. And those countries were very happy to have outside assistance, including US troops on their soil. We were welcomed in West Africa. But imagine a more likely future scenario a disease that's transmitted on an airborne basis and spreads much more quickly. In larger countries, in global megacities with huge populations, not like the small places in West Africa, 
in a country that sends thousands of travelers around the world every day spreading the disease, again, not like the countries of West Africa, and in countries where outside help would be much less welcome, let alone U.S. troops welcomed as heroes as they were in West Africa. So the scenario we're facing in the future is a much more dangerous and threatening scenario than uh, the Ebola scenario. So if the threat is real and the risk is high and the scenarios are dangerous, what should be done? And here I have five specific recommendations I'd like to make to uh, this panel that build on its prior work and speak to its future work. First and foremost, we have to get the right structure in place at the White House. Uh, while threats like terrorism and climate change, weapons of mass destruction, all have their separate directorates within the National Security Council, responsibility for coordinating policy and interagency efforts to respond to either intentional or naturally spread epidemic threats is scattered among a variety of directorates reporting to both the National Security Advisor and the Homeland Security Advisor. That's one reason why President Obama asked me to come to the White House in October 2014 to manage these disparate functions and to coordinate the work of more than a dozen federal agencies that were involved in the Ebola response. Given the threat that these epidemics, pandemics, and bioterrorist events pose, the President should put a coordinating unit together before we face the next crisis. Now, I have an idea slightly different from this group's suggestion of putting the Vice President in charge. I would put that in the hands of a Deputy Assistant to the President for pandemic prevention and response, someone who would be on the NSC staff and who would oversee the medical security, relief, border control, and disaster response experts throughout the White House and ultimately throughout the federal government. But whether you put it in the charge of that person, the Vice President, or someone else, we need to have a policy directorate in place and leadership in place before the next crisis strikes. We don't need a Zika czar, and I should be the last disease czar ever appointed to the federal executive branch. <laughs> Second, we should create a new public health emergency fund and a public health emergency management agency to mobilize the response to a major outbreak in the United States. At the start of the Ebola response, we had fewer than 10 hospital beds nationally that could treat a highly infectious disease patient with a disease like Ebola, 10. At the end of the Ebola response, that number topped 100. Big improvement. But still, on any given day, in any one particular city, we never had more than 10 beds. Now, imagine even a minor outbreak in a city like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Detroit, pick your city, and you can see that even 20 cases at a time would overwhelm our greatest capacity. We need a specially trained workforce of doctors, nurses, and support personnel to treat patients who need to be isolated, they need to be uh, treated, they need to be housed someplace. We might need to quarantine entire neighborhoods, we might need supplies to be delivered in large numbers. Who could do all this? The Centers for Disease Control has trained medical experts, but no real expertise in the kind of logistical uh, operations and the massive movement and people and equipment that would be needed. FEMA would normally handle this sort of work in the event of a tornado or an earthquake, but really lacks the kind of medical expertise and credibility to uh, respond to this particular kind of crisis. That's why I think some kind of molding of the two in a public health emergency management agency, or P-H-E-M-A, or FEMA, uh, would combine key resources and talents from these two agencies to prepare for and train for and execute a response to a full-fledged outbreak of a deadly infectious disease. Whether or not you agree with that structural recommendation, 
I want to strongly endorse the suggestion made by Congressman Cole, by this committee previously, that we need a public health emergency fund. It is absolutely essential that such an emergency fund exist. As we saw last year as Zika spread, the need to go to Congress to get funding to fight an outbreak or an epidemic can needlessly slow a response and make matters much worse. Now, the President can use the Stafford Act, as Governor Rich knows very well, to get immediate help out to respond to a tornado or an earthquake without congressional action. But if nature's wrath takes the form of an infectious disease instead of a tornado or an earthquake, the Stafford Act is unavailable. A response should not have to wait on political wrangling. The president should be able to declare a public health emergency and immediately send aid through an invocation of the Stafford Act and through having an emergency fund available to meet immediate needs. Now, third, our national budget has to build on the domestic preparedness investment made during the Ebola epidemic. During the Ebola crisis, Congress, on a bipartisan basis, appropriated $2 billion for domestic preparedness to equip infectious disease treatment centers and triage facilities, do training, increase testing capabilities. You know, we saw a great wave of investment after the anthrax attack in 2001, Senator Daschle's office and through the work of BioShield. But by the time we got to the Ebola response, many of those investments had been frittered away. People who'd been trained a decade before just weren't where they were. The equipment that had been stockpiled had been uh, you know, uh, used up for other purposes or simply expired. So when Congress made this big investment in 2014 in response to the Ebola response, we need to keep on updating that investment, continue to invest in training, stockpiling all the things, and not let that money frit away as it was uh, with regard to Zika. And I, again, agree with much of what Congressman Cole said in this regard. Fourth, we need to finish the job on WHO reform and build a multilateral response force. As I noted, uh, the Ebola ep outbreak became an epidemic largely due to the failure of man-made institutions. Chief among them is the WHO, which uh, sounded the alarm about the outbreak too late and failed to ever develop a coherent plan to respond to it. Uh, there are efforts right now to fix the WHO. There's obviously an election of a new director general going on, but this needs to be a priority for our country and our leadership to be very engaged to make sure the WHO is uh, fixed. And because I believe the WHO will never have the capacity to respond on a quasi-military basis to deploy the kind of security help you need when an epidemic breaks out, I do think we should work with our EU allies to create a global white helmet battalion that can go into places to provide the necessary support for a response that U.S. troops cannot go in many parts of the world. This is an idea that was advanced by former German Foreign Minister Frank Walter Steinmeier, and I think it deserves our support. And finally, most importantly perhaps, we have to fund a continuation of President Obama's global health security agenda. We either fight these diseases overseas or we fight them here at home, and those are the two choices. His global health security agenda uh, did much to help countries located primarily in Africa and Asia build up their own efforts to detect, treat, and respond to epidemics. Again, the 2014 Ebola Supplemental Appropriations Bill included a substantial boost to these efforts, but we still have a long way to go. It's been mentioned earlier, early budget proposals from the Trump administration with regard to many of the key items uh, are obviously concerning and worrying. Uh, I just have to say that uh, there's no real response for keeping the American people safe uh, so that is as important as really engaging foreign countries and helping to build up national health care systems. I just want to close with this last thought, which is the world really got a wake-up call in 2014 with the Ebola epidemic, uh, a, a very palpable example of what could happen if we don't take measures. But next year, we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ultimate 
wake-up call, the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. And as we think about that sad and tragic anniversary, and probably the least known event in American history that claimed more lives than any other event, it hopefully will remind people of the threat we face and the actions we need to take. So thank you for your time, and happy to answer your questions after my colleagues speak. Thank you very, very much. We have plenty of questions for you. So uh, before we get to that, we'd like to uh, have uh, Andrew Weber uh, share some thoughts with us. Again, ladies and gentlemen, an extraordinary resume, uh, but for our purposes, uh, uh, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Defense Programs, also with experience at the Department of State and uh, quite a bit of time at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Andrew, great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much for your testimony. Thank you, Governor, and thank you for the leadership that this uh, panel is bringing to a, a critical national security subject. Um, it's an honor to be here with you and, and um, my esteemed colleagues, uh, Ron and Alice. But also, I want to thank the, the people in the room who work on these issues every day in public service, in the private sector, in the academic and think tank community, because they really are um, what we need to get, get the job done. And uh, it's an honor to be with, with my former colleagues again. The, land Congress. The, um, the Harvard University, mm -hmm. thank you for mentioning that. I'd like to share with you that we're creating a new program there modeled on the nuclear security work of the Managing the Atom project that was established 20 years ago and succeeded in getting four administrations to make that a number one security Was that priority. Graham Allison's initiative? It's Graham Allison, and soon we'll be welcoming our new director, Secretary Ash Carter. And we're launching a new initiative called Managing the Microbe that will be focused exclusively on biosecurity, and I will be directing that effort, and I look forward to partnering with the Blue Ribbon Panel and others on, on this new initiative. Um, as Ash Carter has said, uh, biology is to the 21st century what physics was to the 20th. And it is uh, really the challenge of our time, but also an, an opportunity given the revolution that's happening in the biological sciences and bioengineering. Um, no need to tell this audience that, that the threats are increasing and becoming more advanced and more complicated. So they're spreading to more players, but also becoming more difficult. Um, and HHS, especially after 9-11 and the, and the huge uh, bump up, the BioShield program, uh, has done great work uh, over the last uh, 15 years, but it's not enough, and, and while I'm um, uh, deeply disappointed in the, um, the cuts that have been proposed in the uh, recent uh, skinny budget. I'm equally disappointed with something that nobody ever talks about, and that's the fact that the national security community, the Department of Defense, where I worked on this uh, topic for, for five and a half years in a leadership capacity, Department of Homeland Security, Intelligence Community, the Department of Energy and its extraordinary National Security Laboratory Network. While funding for defense and security is increasing, funding by those agencies for biodefense is actually decreasing. And we need to talk more about that. We need to be able to understand the numbers. I tried doing some research, and it's pretty hard to even find biodefense uh, in the DOD budget, and I oversaw that for for five and a half years. We need to have sustained and flexible funding. These threats are changing rapidly, and we need 
the ability to uh, be agile. Um, and some of the things that we, we have created, some of the new infrastructure, the advanced development and manufacturing facilities that both um, BARDA and the Department of Defense created, nanobiotherapeutics bio in Florida is the DOD one. It's being underutilized, and, and it's because of uh, resource constraints. We also need to work more on public-private partnerships. Ron and I and others enjoyed incredible um, participation of the philanthropic community, the Gates Foundation, Paul Allen, and Zuckerberg during the Ebola response, and many others. But the US government isn't very good at working on public-private partnerships, especially with the philanthropic sector, which is a major player in this area. Um, one example is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. It's an international effort that the U.S. government is contributing zero dollars to. Um, that's, that's a missed opportunity. I, I, I found uh, that DARPA is, is really doing some creative work with Bill Gates' uh, Intellectual Ventures Innovation Laboratory. They're actually co-funding projects in this area. I've never heard of government successfully co-funding something with a, uh, with a foundation like that, and I think it's a very good model. The um, Defense Innovation Unit experimental uh, effort that, that uh, Secretary Carter launched, that needs to continue, but it also needs to be made available to agencies like uh, BARDA to take advantage of. Um, the National Labs, because the HHS is really the lead in this area and they have no history of working with the National Labs, we're underutilizing that capability. When the Department of Energy lost the chemical and biological defense mission with the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, we, we we lost the opportunity to fully leverage, leverage the national security labs, and I was just visiting uh, Sandia National Laboratory in Albuquerque last week, and, and they don't get any uh, attention or funding from the biodefense uh, civilian side within HHS, which I think is a, is a lost opportunity. Leadership, leadership, leadership. That's what's missing. It's uh, a fragmented area. That's what makes it so hard, but also interesting, is it's, it is very cross-cutting. Uh, just within the Department of Defense, I, President asked me in, in the fall of, of 2014 to go over to, to help Ron full-time on the Ebola response, and it's been now almost three years that the senior position within DOD, with the word biological in it, um, has been vacant. So. There's nobody at the table when you have uh, budget fights at the four-star level to advocate for this mission within the Department of Defense. And we've seen biodefense requests coming out of DOD declining in the last few years. So an easy thing you could do would be to find somebody to fill the position that I had the privilege of serving in and make sure it's somebody with, with expertise and passion for, for biosecurity. Finally, um, we just can't wait until the day after an attack. There's so much we can do that is multi-benefit. We need to do it today to have the foundation and build on what, what has been done in the last 15 years, but we are 
becoming complacent again. We had the Ebola wake-up call, and I'm afraid we're falling asleep again. So let's, uh, let's work together and, and get the new administration and the Congress to refocus the effort and elevate the effort in this really critical area of national and global security. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Alice Hill brings again a rather interesting background, very appropriate to our conversations as a, uh, and I love the title, uh, Alice, forgive me if I call your first name, Senior Director for Resilience Policy. I mean, I like the word resilience <laughs> writ large anyhow. And in that capacity, as I understand it, you work both for, uh, you were counselor to President Obama, but also provided that kind of insight to one of my successors, Secretary Napolitano. So grateful to have uh, your experience and the benefit of your thinking. Uh, we look forward to your remarks. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Governor, and uh, thank you to this panel. Uh, it's really my honor and pleasure. I want to tell you that uh, your report, uh, sometimes when you sit uh, in the executive branch, you see out the window just a flurry of reports coming across. And which one will land? Uh, I can assure you that yours did land. Uh, it not only landed on the windowsill, it landed in the room. Uh, so I think that reflects the thoughtful recommendations that you had and obviously the expertise that you drawn on to make sure that your recommendations resonated and were extremely well informed. I come to you as probably one of the people that uh, might uh, have to encounter bioterrorism and uh, biodefense with no prior background. I was a judge before I joined uh, the Department of Homeland Security, had no bio background, but I was asked by Secretary Napolitano to look at DHS's efforts for biodefense, uh, lead our task force there, and then I had responsibility within the White House. One of the real challenges uh, in this area is that you have people like me who are asked to do this. Uh, and what they encounter is a very fractured uh, landscape, which we've already heard described. Uh, and that fractured landscape may even exist within their own department. Uh, there are going to be competing views about what should happen there. In order to be prepared, you will soon learn, uh, if you're a person as I am, that one of the first things you need to do is get your own department in order and uh, on a proper trajectory. And then the federal government needs to be organized itself in order to provide the kind of support and guidance to the state and local health authorities. You will encounter a number of obstacles uh, to this challenge. Uh, first of all, I don't think uh, there is a single person uh, in the federal government. If we were to call a room of experts in, uh, and by the way, we have some of, as Andy said, uh, some of the top experts uh, in the nation in the room. I've shared the room with them, and they all work uh, with the utmost good faith, intelligence, uh, passion, and diligence on this issue. Despite that, I think if you assembled all of them, uh, there would be no single person who could tell you what the federal government is truly doing in the area of biodefense. I think that's reflected in uh, the fact that we don't have a national strategy. Thank you now. We do have the law that will get us to that. But no one could answer that question. And when you start from that premise, uh, that no leaders at the top could answer that question, and then you devolve down next to the next level, and you ask, uh, uh, what should we uh, be doing as we look across to our other co-agencies? 
we don't have any way to have any true visibility, uh, for example, uh, unless we have a strong relationship with somebody like Andy Weber, uh, to get visibility at DHS on what DOD is choosing to do in the area of biodefense. There's no natural way for that to come forward. Also, uh, and I think some of your recommendations uh, in number four, the uh, action items, get to this. Certainly uh, that there be a cross-cutting biodefense budget analysis will help visibility across the uh, departments so there's better understanding that, uh, and so that there can be deconfliction. There's also truly no one uh, empowered or with uh, probably uh, the broad enough knowledge to make the necessary budgetary trade-offs. Uh, you could see this play out within DHS itself, uh, strong differing opinions as to what uh, makes uh, sense. And I came in there here as a neutral uh, uh, with my uh, background uh, as a judge, but you realize it's very difficult uh, to find that person. And that would play out truly in the budget going forward. When you have that situation, there is a great risk of inertia. And I think that's what's set in in this area, if you observe. We have programs that have continued despite criticism of them. Uh, and that's not to say that there's been an ultimate decision, but there hasn't been uh, sufficient uh, empowered uh, leadership to make sure that we're making those right calls. Another challenge that you will see is that many of the people working in this area either lack the clearances or uh, access to the intelligence briefings that are necessary to understand the biodefense side. Um, and I think because there is a limited demand for those kinds of briefings, uh, there isn't a, a strong uh, demand signal sent to the intelligence community that we need to make sure that we are watching this at all times because there's a very small group that are interested in this. And the broader group may lack the clearances uh, to uh, have an opportunity to understand this becomes particularly critical when you're talking to state and local leaders who don't have the necessary clearances and may not understand the true bioterrorism threat they're facing and don't prioritize it because we can't really share with them uh, what we think is occurring. Um, and by the way, that would be true of other issues as well, but I thought it was particularly true in this issue. I think that recommendation six in your report gets to this. It's talking about uh, greater intelligence uh, and improving the uh, biological intelligence enterprise. I think that's needed so that there's a common understanding among leaders who are empowered in this area as to what the true risks are. And I think that this has been alluded to uh, by uh, Ron and Andy, and by the way, I am so honored to be on the panel with them, uh, talk about passionate, dedicated, and inspirational leadership in this area. They have both shown that and demonstrated that over uh, multiple years. But simply the threat here is not widely understood. And I can tell you as someone who came in cold to this, it was an eye-opener for me. But I had access to the intelligence. I had access to the best uh, uh, experts here. And I also had leadership telling me, well, you need to pay attention to this. And so I was able to educate myself. But in the absence of that, I think there is a tendency to discount the risk. And therefore, it doesn't pr get prioritized uh, up the agenda. So we have a huge education challenge ahead of us uh, to make sure that people understand the urgency and the severity of what we are facing. So as the blueprint makes clear, the federal government certainly has fallen short in this area, and uh, there is much that needs to be done. 
Absent a need for immediate action, God forbid, another crisis, it is very difficult to make improvements in this area. In my opinion, uh, the central challenge uh, for the federal government is stated in the preface of the National Blueprint. It says that capable individuals must oversee elements at the department and agency levels, but no steward guides them collectively at this point. And that's really the underlying problem. Your recommendations get to this. I think a council is critical. Uh, I will tell you that any time that a council is established, unless uh, certainly by the president, it's great risk at the change of administrations. We've seen that with President Trump. Uh, we're certainly uh, with the climate change area where I worked uh, extensively. Uh, those interagency councils designed to get at the cross-cutting siloed uh, uh, problems uh, I believe will not survive in this administration, which will set backward that work. So as you think about that proposal, you must be aware that sometimes, uh, as we've seen, there could be a change in focus. Um, I think that ultimately uh, this panel's work could send the proper message uh, to the government uh, and to our leaders at the highest level that this must be prioritized. But we have an uphill battle in terms of educating across the greater government to achieve this. And that includes at OMB. The OMB structure, as you're talking about uh, a unified budget, also reflects fractures. Uh, and you, until you have a person empowered at OMB to take the responsibility of this at the direction of the director, I don't think you can accomplish this. Because similarly, just as would you gather a group of experts in the federal government and ask them everything that's happening, it's challenging for the OMB examiners to have a full picture as well. So I want to thank you for your work. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, and I'm deeply honored to be here. Thank you. Well, we thank the panel. Uh, Secretary Shalala. Um, thank you very much for your thoughtful comments. Um, let me, um, let me ask you about the culture of the agencies, which I know a little about, but <laughs> including the culture of the White House, um, most of which is sort of organized um, around reactions in this area. How, how without, um, uh, Ron, you've worked for two vice presidents, and I understand the need for a deputy in the National Security Council. But it seems to me that what we're talking about is not since simply someone that's monitoring and, and trying to get some coordination out of the agencies, but a process by which you anticipate the future. And that means long-term investments in the agencies, in the hospitals, as you pointed out. Um, and that requires a different kind of leadership and a different kind of power. And I'm wondering whether... Um, a deputy in national security would be enough for that, and whether it really requires uh, uh, someone like a vice president that has the level of staffing but gets the cabinet officer's attention, uh, the Congress's uh, attention. But focus on anticipating the future and the kind of investments that need to be made as opposed to simply good coordination so you know what everybody's doing so everybody can be brought together and are more disciplined in the process. 
Well, I think, I think we all agree that we need a very high-level person to do the kind of work you're talking about, uh, Madam Secretary. And um, I think the question is, who is that high-level person? I guess uh, between Scooter and myself, we represent chiefs of staff to three uh, vice presidents. It's a pretty good collection. My, my, um, my, my skepticism, frankly, about the vice president is that uh, each vice president's different. They have different focuses and interests. They're often called upon to, do, to be pulled into things. And uh, his or her ability to really focus on this, I think, will always be a bit limited. And then, frankly, their staff beneath the vice president is very small and pulled in many different directions. And so I would house this leadership function inside the NSC, which has more resources, more capacity, more bandwidth to drive issues across the government. But uh, I absolutely agree, though, with the core point here. Whether or not you think it's the vice president or a senior person on the president's staff or an assistant to the president, however you do this, there needs to be someone in the White House who's in charge, who wakes up every day and thinks about the question, what are we doing to get ready? Where are we on the budget? You know, all these things and has a team to really do that. And I'm less focused on which person that is and more on the absence of a very high level person uh, to do that. I absolutely agree. Uh, Donna? Yeah. I just wanted to see whether yeah, the other. Sure. Um, I share uh, Ron's concern about the um, ability of the vice president's office, given their current staffing, to really ensure the type of accountability. Uh, I do think the NSC within the White House structure is uh, well respected for its processes. Uh, it has probably the most disciplined process within uh, the White House, and I think uh, a person empowered on the National Security Council, including because their bio uh, their terrorism uh, issue, uh, is, would be very wise. Thank you, Joe. I, just to follow up, it, it just seems to me that that there are two questions here around the the question that Donna was asking. First, where, from an administrative and a uh, and a structural point of view, should we place the authority? But there's a second question, is and that is, how do we ensure that it is a priority in the first place? And it seems to me. That question is really how do we make it the priority for a president that it needs to be so that this organizational issue can be addressed? And we, you know, I, I'm a huge admirer of President Obama. I, I, I think President Bush deserves a lot of credit for the things that he did after 9-11, but isn't that really the challenge, isn't it? Trying to figure out a way, and you all three can speak from virtually immediate experience here, and in elevating this to a higher level from a priority point of view. The president did exactly the right thing in asking Ron to respond, but why weren't we able to persuade a, a very, you know, smart, uh, in, you know, a president not adverse to making tough decisions to elevate this to the priority it deserved? What do you think is the reason for that, Dr. Hill? I think there are several reasons. Uh, one is, uh, has been alluded to, the demands in the White House. Uh, there are other things occurring. So unless you can carve out a dedicated staff to do that. Uh, my uh, position uh, was changed. Um, uh, it used to be a resilience directorate at the NSC, but because response is so demanding, uh, it was split into a resilience policy this is late in the administration. 
and a response function, essentially. I think that was, uh, from my perspective, successful uh, in that that core small group could just drive policy. Um, and uh, we made some progress in bioterrorism, but not as much as I would hope. Uh, we had the whole panoply. But I think that is one uh, way, is to just make sure that you have protected staff who are simply focusing on long-term policy. If everyone's in the game and everybody's in the room, uh, it's everyone's responding. And so then you have uh, people like Ron uh, stepping in when even that response team is uh, overburdened. Uh, I think there's fundamentally a lack of understanding, uh, and that's the real challenge, uh, is that people just don't appreciate uh, the risks involved. I think there's social science on why this is. We discount the risk. Uh, we have recency bias. We don't think it could happen to us. Uh, we need to work through those uh, and figure out a communication plan. And also the concept of health as a national security issue is relatively new. I mean, it took me two years to convince the National Security Council to put a public health person on the National Security Council, staff person, because sure. they didn't connect sure. health with security. It's an important point. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, take more time than I should. I know Go we ahead, have others Ron. who want to ask questions. But Ron, I, I, because the panel really hasn't focused as much on the global security agenda, I think it's really important that we focus on your fifth recommendation for just a, a couple of minutes. Could you elaborate on what that agenda ought to look like and the kinds of things that could make a big difference as we look to proactively addressing uh, our needs uh, in this context? Thank you, Senator. You know, I'll, I'll start with what Secretary Shalala said a second ago, which is we need to think about health as a security issue. Now, when we fight other forms of terrorism around the world, this country has invested many courageous people's lives and hundreds of billions of dollars in the idea that we want to combat the terrorist threat overseas to lessen our risk of facing it here at home. The same thing's true for biodefense. These diseases, the kinds of diseases, the kinds of infectious diseases, either are, are they spread by terrorists or naturally spread that are going to threat the American people, are out there in the world today, all over the world. And our real choice is, are we going to fight those threats overseas or fight them here at home. And the President Obama's global health security uh, agenda, which he's launched in 2011, uh, is an effort to answer that question by saying, let's take it on over there. Now, what's the best way to take it on over there? In the Ebola response, we ultimately had to take it on over there by sending the 101st Airborne from Fort Campbell, 10,000 civilian and contractors from USAID, the largest deployment of CDC people in the field ever. It was an enormous, enormous effort and a successful one, but it would be much more efficient and cost-effective to invest in national healthcare systems overseas, to invest in regional things. President Obama launched the idea of an African CDC to really build up the capacities in other countries to detect, isolate, and respond. Now, it's also true in this country. It's also true in this country, of course, Madam Secretary. The last thing I'll say is there was a reference to PEPFAR earlier, and I, I just want to bring that back for one second. Um, First of all, PEPFAR illustrates that, again, once again, this is a bipartisan issue, tremendous work by President Bush and his administration on that. But it's interesting how these things pay unexpected benefits. The reason at core, and I think both Dr. Fauci and Dr. Friedman would agree with this, the reason that the Ebola epidemic did not come, become so much worse than it was, was that the disease did not spread in Nigeria. 
And the reason it did not spread in Nigeria is when we had the first cases of Ebola in Nigeria, seven cases, we used the PEPFAR infrastructure that had been built in that country to do the, the contact tracing, to really bring the disease under control. And indeed, conversely, one reason why there weren't the epidemiological investments in the three West African nations was there really hadn't been much investment in PEPFAR there. So PEPFAR in Nigeria was stood up to be the Ebola response in Nigeria, and it's why, notwithstanding the tremendous threat of the spread of the disease in that vastly large country, it didn't threat because the PEPFAR response used that. So these investments we make in overseas public health and the global health security agenda pay great benefits. They pay benefits in terms of our national security interests, our diplomatic interests, and the unexpected benefit of being there when we need it to fight some other threat. Thank you all. Thank, Thank you, you for your good work. Thanks, Tom. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. I thank all the panel for your testimony today, and I think everything you've s said is completely spot on, with one pos possible exception, Ron, and that is your, your suggestion that the Public Health Emergency Management Agency be created, FEMA with a PH, because I can't imagine anything that would make for a more efficient and effective response than in a fast evolving emergency for people to be saying, no, I didn't call FEMA with a PH, not FEMA with an F, so. <laughs> touche, touche. Thank you, Congressman. Just saying. Um, but I do have a question for uh, Mr. Weber. Um, DOD and BARDA are really supposed to work very closely together in, in, in prioritizing the medical countermeasures we need and sharing them and sharing information and so forth. Uh, many in the industry believe that that coordination has a lot to be desired. So I wanted to know if you would comment on what you think is the state of that coordination or lack thereof and what might we recommend to make that work better? Oh, I, I think that's a misimpression. I think uh, coordination was excellent. And, and Jerry Parker came over from HHS, where he was the uh, principal deputy assistant for, for ASPR, for preparedness and response. And then he was my deputy assistant secretary of defense for um, chemical and biological defense. And we had very, very close, good coordination um, through the um, FEMC enterprise. But it was more coordination and deconfliction. What we lacked was pooling of resources, of maybe having a shared fund. Maybe maybe it should be in the 050 account, and 50% is is HHS, and 50% is DOD, and DHS its share, and that we pool resources and, and work on on common objectives. So coordination is good, but it's not enough. Running behind, but I just quickly wanted to uh, respond to that, Congressman. I absolutely agree with what Andy said, which is that, you know, under federal law, the uh, Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Readiness ultimately adjudicates disputes between DOD and NIH about which vaccines go in which order in these tests, and that's what the process we used in the Ebola response. Dr. Lurie came in and, and made an order which these things were tested. We were running out of happily running out of patients to test them on, and so we had to make some hard choices about that. But I think there are three things that really get in the way of developing a vaccine um, for a future crisis that we need to focus on. The first is money, which we alluded to in the previous panel, reliable funding, advanced funding, the kind of funding the private sector can count on. Congressman Cole and you all discussed, I'm not going to belabor that. There are two things that haven't come up, though. 
The second is some kind of better way of the government and the private sector to coordinate in the event of a crisis. You know, I've talked to almost every pharmaceutical CEO after the Ebola response. Their view is, I would never do this again. Basically, all of us set aside our research programs. We all ran to do an Ebola vaccine. We all spent a lot of money. Uh, only one of us wound up with a winner. It set us all behind. We don't really have a great way to coordinate in this instance between the public sector and the private sector. And I think we paid a price for that on Ebola. I think that's, that's a sad thing. And the final thing is there are important legal and liability issues we have not dealt with as a country and as a world. So. As a country, we have a statute that allows um, uh, the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services to uh, Im create an administrative compensation scheme in the event that we have um, uh, need to use a vaccine very quickly that works very well. We use that uh, in the Ebola case. But there's no global mechanism like that. In fact, people may remember in 2009 and 2010, the H1N1 vaccine was late domestically. But in time to prevent the disease from spreading in Europe and sat in warehouses in many places because there was no agreement on who would be liable if the vaccine made someone sick, on what to, how to compensate people, so on and so forth. And this was a huge crisis for us potentially in the Ebola response because you had vaccine makers saying, I cannot give this vaccine in Liberia or Guinea or Sierra Leone unless I know who's liable for it if something bad happens. Uh, how we're going to compensate people if something bad happens, how we're going to prove and test something if something bad happens. So some kind of global mechanism to quickly approve vaccines, to deal with these liability and litigation issues is sorely missing. And I, I, I sadly predict that we will face a day where we will see people getting sick and a vaccine existing and there being confusion over who can give it, who pays, and it just sitting there. And I, that, that we, are, we are set up for that as a planet right now. Thanks. I want to thank the panel for your comments and your insights. It's been very helpful. Ron, I wanted to follow up on the um, on your recommendation, I think it was number three or number four, about FEMA. So as Jim said, I want to talk about FEMA, not FEMA. Okay, got that? Um, but I found that very intriguing. I guess so. sort of a two-part question. One, so what is it that, what are the, the, the shortcomings of the current situation that you think this would remedy? And then I guess then on the back end, what would the result of this be? Would it, you know, because we've talked about um, harmonizing government operations in this area, and would this be a situation where you'd actually be hiving off something from FEMA, giving it to another agency, creating another agency, which would just work against that objective? Look, I think those are, I think first of all, the, 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 homonomic confusion is a fair point that Congressman Greenwood <laughs> pointed out. I take that seriously. But I, I think that, um, I think that he, here's the problem we face. Go, let's go back to Dallas in September and October of 2014 with uh, Thomas Eric Duncan bringing Ebola there, two nurses getting Ebola uh, in the hospital. And, and then there just being a great deal of confusion about what to do in the community, right? Uh, should uh, Nina Pham's dog be quarantined, and if so, where, and who could feed the dog, and what should happen to the dog? If the disease had spread at all, where would you house the people who had the disease? Where would you keep them? How would you feed them? If, if the disease was spreading in the neighborhood, how would you quarantine the neighborhood? Who would come in? How would you treat, train uh, uh, local uh, first responders on some of these issues and, and whatnot? And, and, and what we found was FEMA, with an F, had the kind of logistical capacity to deploy contractors quickly, to build tents, to do all the things that they do so well. Secretary Ridge knows you know, so well. 
but but their people really didn't know what to do with a dog that might have Ebola, or people that might have Ebola, or how to dispose of the waste, or all these issues. Tons of logistical issues that we, that we encounter. CDC, on the other hand, they had all the expertise, but they don't have the kind of contracting authority that FEMA has. They don't have the boots on the ground that FEMA can summon. And so whether or not you think about this function as being something that you carve out of FEMA and CDC and make into its own thing or, or make a special unit inside FEMA, what I can tell you is right now, if we had 20 cases of an infectious disease in New York or Chicago, and the president said, okay, get me someone on the phone who can put these people in a place, treat them, feed them, uh, deal with their homes, deal with their loved ones, all these things that we count on FEMA to do after a tornado or an earthquake, we really don't have that capacity in the federal government right now. But, but we don't, but it's supposed to be a state and health department function as well, and CDC gives a lot of money to to uh, state departments and local departments. Uh, if you did New York City, I bet the New York City Health Department could handle that. In some more isolated area, they probably uh, didn't have the capacity. Well, I mean, with all due respect, I, I think maybe the New York City Public Health Department is the best one in the country, and if anyone could do it, maybe they could. But what I would tell you is, even there, their first responders aren't necessarily trained in a lot of this. Uh, as I said, the most number of hospital beds we had at any one hospital in New York was three, maybe four at one hospital. And I think more generally, as we talked about earlier, public, state public health authorities um, are stretched on budgets. And, and then we have this complicated issue about state law. So in Dallas, let's be honest, these decisions were made by a state court judge, Clay Jenkins, a very talented, dedicated, loyal public servant, because under Texas law, the local public health authority is a state court judge, okay, uh, on a county-by-county county basis under Texas law. Texas is not a small state, okay? And each state has its own set of rules about who actually makes these decisions. Judge Jenkins made the decision that they didn't have to destroy Nina Pham's dog. They just had to isolate it and feed it very carefully. You know, so, you know, the, the, we don't really have the right kind of response structure. New York is probably a special case. They are super talented up there, great, great folks. But really outside of New York, it's very, very thin. We found, frankly, even the task of tracking people from West Africa who were here, and outside of New York, we didn't have more than 30 of them in any city in the country at a time, and tracking them, phoning them on a cell phone twice a day and asking their temperature, put most state and local public health departments to the test, okay? Put them to the test. And uh, over the, the four or five months, they, they would, we, we had to send them supplemental funding. It, was, it just really stretched them. So these state and local public health departments, they are great, dedicated public servants. Their hearts are in the right place. They are underfunded. And most of them aren't really ready for this kind of thing. Oh, I just I tend to make an observation. I think the country is lucky that President Obama put you in that position. Move on. Thank you very much. Uh, th thanks to the uh, three of you. V really helpful uh, uh, analysis and recommendations. Ron, I thought... Your recommendation about the Stafford Act is just almost a no-brainer, uh, and uh, but none of us had the brains to think about it. <laughs> so uh, that's something we ought to urge Congress to do, which is to give the president the same authority regarding infectious disease outbreaks that he has with regard to other crises uh, under the Stafford Act. The second is that uh, after Hurricane Katrina, 
uh, and the dismal performance of FEMA. It really went through a, a major reorganization. And uh, it, it's a top-notch organization, as you said now, and I think it's important for us to focus in on how we can involve them in getting ready uh, for, for what is the ine inevitability of certainly a infectious disease outbreak. But let me focus on a different part of this. Um, you know, this uh, conventional and good wisdom in Washington that if you're not interested in getting credit for something, there's no end to what you can accomplish. You kept um, very low visibility as the Ebola coordinator, and I think generally people feel you accomplished a lot. Um, so I want to ask you about that, and to a certain extent I want to challenge you on it in this sense. And we talked about this, not about your, your role, but about the, this uh, in, pre in previous sessions we've had. Uh, uh, one of the major functions we think we have, and we're a really a small voice against the news of the day, is to try to keep people in Congress, the executive branch, at least of uh, thinking about the inevitability of an infectious disease outbreak and, and the probability of a bioterrorist attack. No interest in the media generally, or little interest, uh, but when it happens, as you saw with Ebola and Zika, it's 24-7, and the public is in a panic, probably disproportionate to the threat. So I, I'm, I'm, I want you to just look back. Why did you maintain such a low profile? Uh, and um, how should we handle the public relations? Because in, in the Zika case, I think there was some confusion about who was speaking for the federal government, and, and it, compounded, it compounded the anxiety out there. Well, uh, thank you, Senator, for that question. You know, uh, Judge Hill alluded to the fact that she's not a doctor. There was a time when I was the most famous not a doctor in America in the fall of 2014. And, um, you know, I was very aware of the fact that my expertise, the thing President Obama asked me to do, was to come in and to organize the agencies, build a quick policy process, resolve a lot of these issues. I was not and am not a disease expert. And we had Dr. Fauci and Dr. Frieden speak on behalf of the administration. Dr. Fauci in particular is a national treasure. I mean, it is literally a national treasure, someone who served presidents of both parties, respected uh, and, and widely regarded. Uh, Dr. Frieden also did an amazing job both in New York and in the Obama administration. And I think having them as our voices and faces in the Ebola response uh, was very important. We were handicapped in one way. We had no Surgeon General, who I think was also a potential public face of this at the time. The Surgeon General's nomination was tied up in a little bit of politics. He did not get confirmed until, I think, December of 2014, after the midterm elections. Uh, and I think, again, the Surgeon General is a potential person to be out front on a lot of these issues. And I think, I hope as President Trump selects a new Surgeon General, this will be in mind as a function the Surgeon General will play. The U.S. Public Health Service manned the only hospital that we use to treat healthcare workers in West Africa. Courageous men and women from the U.S. Public Health Service went and served in West Africa for several months and did an amazing job of saving lives there. And as their leader, the Surgeon General is a great potential force on this. Um, but I think we also have to recognize, Senator, that um, this is more complicated than just one person and one voice. We live in an era of social media. And as you said, in the fall of 2014, one of the challenges was that virtually any person with an opinion was given a platform on cable television to express their views about what might or might not happen. And you had leading experts like Dr. Fauci 
you know, on TV and being contradicted by some person who'd read some paper someplace and said that just wasn't true or whatever, right? And so I do think one challenge that we all face, uh, the public health community faces, and you as leaders face is not just who is the face, but how can someone speak with credibility in an era where almost everything is debated and disputed? Last thing I'll say, I do think um, we also made a decision in the White House for President Obama to begin to speak more frequently on this. And he addressed the public three times a week about Ebola in October and November and provided uh, great leadership. And I think one thing the president was fond of saying or did say, really formulated crisply in that period of time, is that America's willingness to lead on these issues is part of what makes us an exceptional nation. People like to talk about American exceptionalism. One thing that makes us an exceptional nation is at times of crisis, our country steps up and leads. And that's what we did for the world in the fall of 2014 when we led a global response with regard to Ebola. That's what we have to do now with regard to this threat generally. And that leadership really has to come in some part from the president, uh, him or herself. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, maybe that's the answer. Uh, I don't want to take any more time. I'd urge you, if you have any other thoughts about how the government should be prepared for communications toward the next uh, crisis uh, uh, like this, uh, please let us know. Thank you. Uh, before Thanks. we let the panel go, I want to know if there's any questions from our very – we've been, for the past two years over, I think that you know that we've been – assisted in a sustained basis by the ex-officio members of the panel. I don't want to ignore their, their relevance and their importance to this, uh, this effort. Uh, a question or two from, the, from any of you in this area before we move on to the next panel? Okay, two questions. China, yeah, there, I think I'm, I'm on. Uh, we talked, I'm going to go back to the FEMA, PH uh, FEMA, and I think there's a domestic uh, part of this, but there's also an international part of this. And, and I didn't hear any mention of all Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance, who also leads other humanitarian disaster crisis response. What would that role be um, for the international component of this? In, in August of 2014, when Ebola was really um, starting to grow out of control, the um, the DART team, the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance team that they sent out there, had no capability to deal with a public health crisis. So we helped uh, introduce uh, Tom Frieden, who was a close colleague, and Nancy Lindborg, and they, they agreed to have a CDC person as the deputy on that team. So something like that, um, domestically, I think would be good, where you have uh, a hybrid of the agencies with the appropriate expertise, empowered to work together and, and have good reach back to the political leadership. Yes. A couple quick questions. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, and, and maybe it's more of a, um, a comment. We could follow up with you later uh, just to save some time. But I keep hearing, you know, there's uh, such a focus on response and are we prepared. Um, <clears throat> And I'm kind of looking to you, Mr. Weber, because I think with nuclear threats, we just don't want to harden everyone's home like we did 30 years ago in America and just wait for the bomb. Um, and so I've seen some of the programs at DITRA or at CBEP about really those engagements. I think GHSA is kind of the next generation. And we've been kind of like, we try to put that politically correct, that we're really doing it to help the rest of the world. Um, but maybe we should be a little more honest about why we're really protecting, you know, how this protects Americans, how we're defending our country. 
Um, so I want to leave it at that. I don't want to take more time with you talking, but if we could follow up with you later to see some lessons learned on that, or if you want to make a short comment. Sure, I'll make a short comment. I, prevention is, is really important in this, and there's more you can do in this area that's multi-benefit than in preventing nuclear terrorism. Um, and the DOD program called the Cooperative Biological Engagement Program, which does global health security for the Department of Defense and for the country, was cut 30% last year, and nobody noticed. Um, you know, I've been like you in, in Africa and Southeast Asia and the former Soviet Union in these laboratories, <clears throat> and these are the places where ISIS is going to get Bacillus anthracis. We have an opportunity to prevent that from happening by consolidating the number of laboratories that have these dangerous pathogens by moving them into a few safer, more secure laboratories. But the window of opportunity for that, you know, it could close tomorrow. So I'm a big believer in sustaining these investments in, in prevention. Final question, please. So we have uh, the inevitable convergent themes of silos and why hasn't this reached the level of priority. A different element, Dr. Hill did speak about the challenge of lack of security clearances and access to appropriate uh, briefings from the IC. Uh, but apart from the public announcement by DNI Clapper with regard to placing gene editing as one of the top six existential threats to the United States, for those of us who do have the clearances, there is still some concern even there that the level of embedded expertise in the intelligence community is insufficient, yet alone uh, the, the inevitable question of interagency coordination. Could you make a comment? Well, this is based purely on observation, uh, but uh, certainly the intelligence community has a wide uh, array of threats that they need to focus on, but this is one of those ones that's not immediate, uh, and so uh, there isn't as big a demand uh, from as many policymakers, I need a briefing on X, um, and uh, there's a smaller group that would call for such. Uh, so I think that the intelligence community answers uh, the uh, request that has come in, and then it's more difficult to build that uh, uh, cadre of de, uh, folks that are interested and demanding it. Andy and I uh, were in an interagency effort to do that, to bring in the experts across uh, the federal government to make sure that we were all having a common risk picture. But I don't think that that survived the entire time. Um, I think it's simply because people get pulled away to the demands of the day. The, the only thing I'd add to that quickly is I think that um, with regard to naturally spreading infectious diseases, we, we need to embed more epidemiological expertise inside the IC. A lot of, without revealing anything, uh, you know, secret or anything, I would say a lot of the early reports we got when I took over as the Ebola response coordinator from the IC were about where Ebola had been, which was, which was of interesting historical import but not that helpful from a resource allocation perspective. Understanding where Ebola was about to be was really the question we wanted to know. And you'd, you'd see these maps that are being sent to the White House every day, and they were all lit up with lots of Ebola deaths, but they were lit up with places that literally hadn't seen a new case of Ebola in weeks or months because basically the epidemic had passed there. So I think you know we need to think a little bit more about how the epidemiological experts and the people in the intelligence community work together 
to, to give the kind of uh, reports that you really need in the event of a crisis. I would like to thank this very distinguished panel for your contributions and what is more likely than not going to happen, once you volunteer to appear, we may be knocking on your door for further insights, uh, private rather than public. So again, we thank you very much. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. To our colleagues in the audience, uh, you were supposed to have a break about an hour ago. You can't have it. Uh, please feel free to take it. There's coffee out there. There's some things. We're going to move right into the second panel. If you need to take a break, feel comfortable, please take it. We'd like the second panel to come to the front of the room, please. The more I hear about this, the more I want in the White House with somebody that's answerable to him. I don't know. Well, if the president says the vice president, this is your primary job, that would be his primary job. Other than providing over the Senate and the political campaigns. I, I, I agree with you. I just, it's so, dis, it's, it's, it's quite interesting to have a former. Focus on the need to overcome persistent budgetary limitations. Uh, good luck. Uh, but it's really the, uh, really at the epicenter of the, much of the work that we're trying to accomplish. So we thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, and uh, Jeff, is, do I hope we pronounce correctly, Shlegomich? I uh, uh, yes, is the deputy director. And this is very interesting background. The National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, and I'm going to ask you, Jeff, please uh, begin this conversation with us, and thank you for your participation. 
Thank you, and uh, I'd like to thank the panel for the invitation to speak today, as well as for all of your continued work towards improving our nation's biodefense capabilities. Uh, at our center, at the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute, we've been engaged with this issue for over a decade by conducting primary research on preparedness, response, and recovery, engaging in policy analysis and advocacy, and by creating tools and trainings for the practice community. So through that, one of, the, one of the truths that we keep coming to is how much public health really happens at the community level. And I want to spend a little bit of time today just really focusing my comments on local uh, biodefense infrastructure. And to illustrate it simply, uh, a national stockpile of pharmaceuticals is really only useful if there's someone in your community there to put it in your arm in time to save your life. Um, this is what in uh, national planning is often referred to as the last mile or where national assets are handed over to our state and local systems to carry out the job of protecting the public's health. But it's also the most complex part of that continuum because, uh, as Mr. Klein mentioned previously too, there, there's so many different variances in state and local government systems and politics and resources and relationships. And so what often happens is we just don't focus on it because it's too hard to focus on, it's too complex. Um, and it's really hard to capture in concise statements, and it's even harder to unify measurements of progress or even define what that is. As a result, state and local public health preparedness funding has been cut by about a third since peak levels. The hospital preparedness program cut by about half. The statistic is, is used pretty widely. Um, but these funding streams were not necessarily designed to be permanent when they were founded. But what we've learned over these years is that preparedness systems really function as infrastructure. And as infrastructure, it requires long-term planning and stability and funding, as well as clear measures of performance, all of which still remain elusive. Now, the alignment of capabilities across programs and the creation of five-year authorization cycles have been helpful uh, and a step in the right direction. But uncertainty in the annual appropriations process and a virtual absence of locally relevant measures of preparedness have limited the value of these changes. So our first recommendation is to enhance the core funding vehicles for the last mile by increasing funding for the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program and the Hospital Preparedness Program to their 2003-2004 levels, but also by appropriating funding multiple years in advance. This should happen initially for a five-year period with a parallel investment to really define the optimal levels of preparedness so that we can address these unanswered questions of how much funding is required and what is the quantified value of this national investment. Of course, stabilizing preparedness funds is only the first step, and local communities would still require specific and sufficient resources to respond effectively to a bio-event, whether it's natural or intentional. Uh, I'm going to echo my colleagues and talk about the lack of a funded public health response vehicle and how public health chronically finds itself either having to pull from other programs, go to Congress for emergency funding, uh, or simply hold back on the response because there aren't enough resources available. And of course, during Zika virus, we saw all of these options play out. The, savings of, the saving of lives should not inherently be a political process, but too often we see it hampered through partisan maneuvering. So our second recommendation is that a public health emergency fund should be established and funded at a level no less than $2 billion. Mm -hmm. And it should be replenished as needed so that a meaningful response can be employed when necessary. Now, an existing vehicle was already created in 1983 for the secretary of HHS. However, it was never really funded to meet these large-scale disasters like Zika, Ebola, and pandemic influenza. And there are many proposals currently being circulated in the House and the Senate right now, and this is definitely a good sign 
but we need to make sure that, that the funding is implemented at sufficient levels and that there are appropriate triggers for use. Uh, the funding should also allow for advanced declarations when we see outbreaks overseas, similar to pre-landfall declarations for hurricanes that are used under the Stafford Act. Uh, uh, but the current proposals also tend to link the use of this emergency fund with a declaration of a public health emergency. And this is a declaration the United States did not make for Zika or Ebola. And so we really need to look at this trigger and see that if a funding vehicle was attached to it, that it would have worked for Zika or Ebola. Um, if it's going to be hardwired into that in uh, future uh, funding vehicles. And finally, I want to mention public-private partnerships. And so we frequently talk about these, and it tends to focus primarily on research, development, manufacturing, supply chains, all critical aspects of biodefense. But there are also many other ways that the private sector can support um, solving some of these biodefense problems, especially at the local level. Um, two quick examples, with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, we have been contracted to develop performance measures uh, for preparedness and response, and we're integrating private sector concepts like emergent strategy, managing uncertainty, and organizational theory. And with the uh, biopharmaceutical and healthcare company GSK in partnership with Save the Children, uh, we've been funded to develop community resilience coalitions uh, focused on child-serving institutions and integrating their work into the formal public health and emergency management systems. But in addition to the resources, they're also contributing communications expertise so we can reach new audiences and elevate the voices of the communities and the work they're doing into the national dialogue. So for our final recommendation, uh, we urge Congress and the administration to embrace the wide range of benefits that can come from the private sector integration with local preparedness, and to do this by creating technical assistance programs that can help local communities and private sector partners connect with each other, and to create guidance for navigation of legal hurdles such as the Federal Advisory Committee Act, antitrust regulations, and other perceived barriers to collaboration and further incentives for this kind of work uh, and this kind of collaboration should also be explored. Because a community's resources are not just its tangible assets. It's in the ingenuity and the networks of all of its people. And the more seats we have at the table, the more we can grow our effectiveness and access our community's fiscal, intellectual, and social resources that we have yet to fully capitalize on in biodefense. So I'll conclude by once again expressing my sincere gratitude for the work of this panel and your commitment to hearing all of these different perspectives. And I look forward to answering any questions you may have. Let me conclude by thanking you for giving us a synopsis of three or four pages of testimony. I know you were prepared to read, so thank you for uh, giving us the uh, Cliff Notes version. I appreciate it very much. Very no sensitive. I appreciate that. Um, Linda O'Neill. Great pleasure to welcome you. Linda is the Vice President of Government Affairs of the Health Industry Distributors Association. We're anxious to uh, get your perspective. It's an interesting private sector perspective, so please share it with us. Well, thank you. Um, it is actually an honor to be here in front of all of you. Uh, the Health Industry Distributors Association is thrilled that the supply chain has become so sexy recently. I've had many, many phone calls from different organizations asking about, about supply chain and what we do and who we are, and so I'm thrilled to be here in front of you today. On a personal note, um, it's also an honor because I feel like I know a lot of you. I used to be a Senate staffer, so I used to listen to you quite often on the floor, and you used to work with your staff quite a bit um, on rural health. I used to work for Senator Thomas. So I was right under your office during anthrax, and during 9-11, we were in that tower with you in the Hart Building. So it's come full circle that I'm able to come back and talk to you about something that affected many of us um, a while ago when we were all on Capitol Hill. 
So HIDA is the Health Industry Distributors Association. Uh, we are the distributors who are bringing the non-sexy stuff but that is critical to any sort of response, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's a bioterrorism event. It's the gloves, it's the needles, it's the syringes, it's the personal protective equipment. It is the non-medical countermeasure, but if you don't have the needles and the gloves, you're not gonna get that medical countermeasure into the people who need it. And so that is who my members are. They generally are serving a market, so they're going to a hospital setting, they are going to the physician offices, or they're going to post-acute in the nursing homes or even going to folks' homes if they need some of those like durable medical equipment types of supplies in their home. And so that's who we are as a trade association. We are not the pharmaceutical distributors. I know we've been talking pharma and vaccine development, again, all of which is fantastic, but we're on that medical product side of the world in terms of the supply chain. We also have a foundation, so love our manufacturing partners who do lies, um, distribution to get to our end user customers. Um, sit on that foundation and help um, educate and develop materials, um, which I've shared some with your staff, on that value of distribution and the role that we play in an event and that type of stuff. So it's a lot of manufacturers who are doing the needles and the syringes and the gloves and those types of things. So what I'm going to share with you today is, is a few things um, in terms of what we see as supply chain challenges, along with a couple things that we've been working with the Strategic National Stockpile on to do some improvement, and then leave you maybe with a few thoughts for some recommendations as you all do your work that, that I hope kind of connect some of those dots for you. So what we see from a supply chain perspective, and I agree fully with what everybody's been saying about Ebola, We've, we thoroughly did dodge a bullet. We did not have enough product, I think, here. If we had a lot more cases, when you think about the number of gloves and the burn rate that folks were going to need to care for a lot more patients than we had. And so that really got us to thinking around the lack of elasticity in the supply chain. And there's a lot of good reasons why we are lean and mean. There's a lot of price compression, there's a lot of consolidation, and what we do as distributors, we bring to the hospital floor what they need that day. We do a lot of low unit of measure and just-in-time type of delivery. We even bring the surgical kits that they need in the order of the instruments they need it for the surgeries that they have scheduled that day, which is great for efficiencies. This is great for um, getting that inefficiency out of the system, but doesn't do a lot of help, I think, when you need that cushion for any sort of public health or preparedness you know, that you all are, are thinking about and talking about today. And part of that reason as well we've been exploring with the stockpile is, I'm going to give you a manufacturer example, is not only are we lean and mean for good reason, distributors maybe have a couple weeks, a month or so of supply on their shelves at any one time. Manufacturers might also have an emergency stock. But when we talk about global, which came up on the previous panel, the supply chain is global and everybody is depending on us. And it doesn't matter which agency, which country is needing the materials. And there's only so many manufacturers of needles, there's only so many manufacturers of gloves, there's only so many distributors here. And everybody, whether it's DOD, whether it's VA, whether it's HHS, are all they're all depending on that same supply chain. And so what happened to us as we've been exploring some of the manufacturer challenges is, and I'm going to use gloves as an example, something as simple as gloves you need no matter what. They're basically made in three countries, Malaysia, Thailand, and China. Basically what's in production now is stuff that was ordered basically six months ago because they have to plan so far in advance when you've got a month of shipping time across the Pacific. You have to get it through those West Coast ports, which if we also think back to 2014, we had a West Coast port labor issue, and I have young kids. It wasn't just about toys at Christmas. Those were healthcare products that were also sitting on those barges and on those containers waiting to be offloaded. And so when you think about how 
fragile in some ways the supply chain can be for something as simple as gloves that you need no matter what. And when you think about Ebola and CDC recommending double gloving, those numbers get really high that you need for any sort of appropriate preparedness for whatever response you might be dealing with. The healthcare market generally does about three billion gloves a month. If you think about an anthrax event in New York City and you think about 2% or 3% of the population that actually would get sick, uh, if you're not able to get the treatment within the next, those first 48 hours, that's what, I'm not a mathematician, but 170,000, 200,000 folks you might have to face and care for who might be symptomatic for that type of attack. And that's a lot of gloves when you think about burn rate. Um, it's just some, one example. And so we've been kind of trying to figure out how can we build a little elasticity uh, in that supply chain. I'll come back to that in one second. The other challenges that we face is, and again, this came up, people panic. It's normal. Everybody panics during pandemics. You have over-ordering, double-ordering. The first distributor doesn't have it. The hospital's going to their second or third distributor, which also exacerbates the demand, which we never really are going to realistically catch up to. And so we've also been trying to do some work around educating appropriate behavior uh, during a pandemic, and I think that's an opportunity for some additional public-private collaboration, because it's my members who are in those hospitals and physician's offices on a daily basis delivering and, I think, help carry some of that message that the federal government wants that to be done. One example of that over-ordering and that demand spike that we see as a challenge as a supply chain, you think back to H1N1, Everybody wanted an N95 mask, right? Even folks who didn't probably need one. You're talking about the public that is getting involved. Everybody wants to get their hand on the N95 masks. And when you look back at the three most popular brands, they generally are about 1,000 or 1,200 a month is what you're looking at. So about 3,000 a month is what you're seeing um, on a normal day-to-day -day operation for the, the N95 masks. During H1N1, it increased 500%. We had 20,000 a month that were ordered, people thinking they were going to use them. And let me tell you, <laughs> when the crisis was over, people canceled orders, et cetera, and we had, we had N95 masks on our shelves for years before we were able to get rid of them. And as a commercial sector and distributors, we take ownership of that. When we are purchasing it and doing those purchase orders from the manufacturer, we take ownership. So until we sell that or are able to do anything with that, that is ours. Um, and again, that from, a, from an ability to do some better public-private collaboration, I think that is one in terms of how we can do some pre-event planning on what the true demand might actually be so that when we see orders that are three or four times larger than normally would be coming from our hospital customers, we've got some data to back up and say, you know what, you don't need 10,000 and 95 masks. You probably need five or six percent more than you normally would, and we're going to help you build to that, and so that we can maybe get our arms better around the true demand rather than the over-ordering and the hoarding that tends to happen. So what we've done with that is we've been sitting down with the Strategic National Stockpile um, quite a bit over the past year. We've had a couple tabletops. They've been fantastic about being educated on how the commercial sector works. We've taken them on what I kind of think of as an education tour with several of my members, both distributors and manufacturers, to have a better sense of, of how we operate, how we do our day-to-day -day business. And a couple things have come out of that that I think I will leave you with is is we realized that we weren't even necessarily speaking the same language. So if you remember during Ebola, CDC came out with recommending um, a certain type uh, glove, and 
that sounds great, but when you look at our distributor databases, do you know how many SKUs we have on gloves? When you think about the different brand, you think about small, medium, large, you think about powder, powder-free, latex, all that type of stuff. So I'm just saying glove is, again, a simple example, but for to get a sense of what's in the market, we can't search our databases because we need more than that. Um, and that triggered a whole conversation with them about, so we've got a work group started on gloves, and to think about what are the attributes that physical attributes, scientific attributes that describes that product so that we can then search our databases and give them a true sense of what the commercial market has. It also would identify some viable substitutions. So maybe it's not that specific, I'm gonna to switch to needles, maybe it's not that specific gauge needle, but if it does the same sort of thing and during crisis, we're able to give them a bigger picture of what is in the market and what is available that would be able to do what is needed for that time. Um, and I think as we work through some of that, one, we have to have a little bit of a language issue so that we can get the data. Uh, and I think the end goal is how can we create some elasticity in the supply chain. So when you think about needles and gloves and keeping it simple, if they can understand exactly what is in the commercial market, what we exactly could surge to and how long. I mean, I know for gloves, they're at 90% capacity for all their manufacturing plants. There's not a lot of, a lot of lag in there. Um, maybe the supply chain can run heavy or heavier for some of those products. We run those a lot, we replenish those, we reflush, we sell a lot of gloves, we sell a lot of needles. We don't sell a lot of Tyvek suits. Those are not generally needed for everyday surgeries and procedures, so maybe it makes more sense for the stockpile to take that on. Um, and maybe we can help complement what is needed by having that cushion and a little bit more elasticity. Because as previous panel was describing, when we really do have a major, major event, an Ebola on steroids that's aerosolized or whatever that would spread a lot quicker, we need a bigger cushion than what we have right now. And so the other thing that we are working on uh, with them is, is a playbook. There was talk about communications on several of the panels today before you, and one of the things that came up as we've been growing this trust with the stockpile folks is, well, if you need us to bring certain things to a hospital that's going to treat an Ebola patient, we need to know what the what is. What is that bucket or that list of products that you would anticipate you would need for treatment? It's PPE plus what? Is it the diagnostics that you need to, to draw the blood and, you know, and run that through the system? How would we help you with, with cleanup? And so we are kind of trying to work on a playbook to get at that when plan A needs to take effect, what is plan A? And you know what your commercial sector partners are going to be able to do. And we've been carrying that message jointly. I was at that preparedness summit uh, last week that both you were at. I think I was there the day after you, um, talking to the state and locals. And I was asking them, you know, do you know who your local hospital uses as a distributor? Do you know who you <coughs> could depend on if you needed product moved uh, quickly? And so I think all of that culminates into a one, to give you a little hope, because I always feel like I'm a downer when I'm talking about supply chain and how lean and mean we are and we don't have a lot of product. But I think we're trying to do some really good work with the strategic national stockpile. But that's just gloves and needles. And when you think about all the other products that you would need for any sort of response, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And it's gonna take us a lot of work to even get that model going that we would love replicated. Um, in some way, too, as you look at your funding options from a budget perspective on that uniformed one single place, is how can you operationalize maybe some of the collaboration that's already taking effect? I think we've done a great job building that relationship, but we won't all be in our positions forever and ever. How do you keep some of that going?
So I think the only other thing I would mention from that in the funding we is... We would ask you to wrap it up as soon as you could, please. Yep. Is to, one, compliment you on one of the recommendations from the Blue Room Panel Report, and that was the tiering of the hospitals. And I would love to see that built on. If we don't have that, we can't move off our contractual obligations around allocation and let us divert product to where it's really needed. And so to have that built upon and become more of a permanent um, entity going forward is something that the supply chain would really depend on. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dan Kanuski, it's a great pleasure to see you. People should know that Dan was the former special assistant to President George W. Bush for Homeland Security and Senior Director for Response Policy. So the three of you uh, give us a very unique perspective. Dan, we're happy to have yours. Thank you, Governor, and thank you to all the panel members here. My former boss, Ken Weinstein, thanks to you. Uh, I'm Dan Kanuski. I'm Vice President for Global Resilience at AAR Worldwide. We're a catastrophe risk modeling firm that founded the industry in 1987, and today we model the risks from natural disasters, cyber, and pandemics. Our traditional clients are from the insurance industry. So that'd be brokers, insurers, and reinsurers. My relatively new role at the company is to leverage our 30 years of experience with the insurance industry for the public good. Thus, I primarily interact with governments, federal, state, local, as well as non-governmental organizations. As the governor said, I earlier served in the White House and was actually there during Hurricane Katrina. And I see uh, biodefense as one component of a comprehensive all-hazards approach to emergency management. At AAR, we model 10 U.S. hazards, pandemics being one of those. Today, I'm gonna give a quick overview of cat modeling. Next, I'll provide uh, uh, an example of a cat model, which is our pandemic model. It's very relevant to today's discussion. And I'll describe one of our current engagements with the World Bank to demonstrate the value of catastrophe modeling when budgeting for pandemics, and I'll end with a couple of policy recommendations. So first, CAT Modeling 101. Let me say uh, that I believe CAT models, embraced by the insurance industry for decades, yet relatively unknown to the public sector, are directly applicable to the focus of this panel. Due to the low frequency of extreme events, including bioterrorism and pandemics, traditional methods that rely on historical data may not be a good predictor of future losses. Thus, we have developed probabilistic models that help our clients prepare for the impacts of these events before they occur. Built from the most current scientific data available, AAR models capture how extreme events behave and impact residential commercial property, public infrastructure, and human life using sophisticated simulation methods. Catastrophe models are designed to answer questions such as, where are future events likely to occur? How intense are they likely to be? And for each potential event, what is the estimated range of damage and loss? We run thousands of simulated events through our computer models to determine what the likely losses will be for these future disasters. And you may ask, why is this relevant? Well, let's consider an example from the insurance industry. When Hurricane Andrew struck Florida in 1992, there were $16 billion in insured losses, and the disaster bankrupted 12 insurers. In 2011, which is the year of Fukushima and several other major disasters, there was $108 billion in insured losses, yet only one insurer became insolvent. We believe that this reduction in insurer insolvencies can largely be attributed to the widespread adoption of catastrophe modeling by the insurance industry. By providing enhanced understanding of risk, catastrophe modeling enables insurers to reduce their exposures to catastrophic losses through risk management techniques and reinsurance. 
As I hope you'll glean from my statement today, the benefits of cap modeling are not limited to the insurance industry. Through cap modeling, we can identify and quantify risks to infrastructure, populations, we can evaluate mitigation strategies and inform disaster finance programs. So let me turn to our pandemic model and speak specifically about the application. With only a handful of pandemics that have occurred historically, they're few in number and all different. Without understanding what is actually possible in the future, you risk being in the dark about what occurs next. Our interdisciplinary team of scientists, including, for example, epidemiologists, statisticians, and GIS experts, created a realistic ensemble of potential pandemics. They understand how outbreaks occur and the drivers of morbidity and mortality that build, and they build these models based on projections about what could occur in the future. We model uh, an ever-expanding list of pathogens, including bacterial and viral diseases, including influenza, coronaviruses, that include SARS and MERS, uh, filoviruses, including Ebola and Marburg, as well as plague, cholera, loss of fever, bacterial meningitis, and others. We also have the ability to model anthrax and smallpox using our terrorism model. A stochastic catalog for our pandemic uh, contain over 100, sorry, contain over 1 million potential scenarios, each given a probability. Now this goes beyond traditional epidemiological modeling. It also includes population movement, including the effect of any travel restrictions, temporal dynamics of pandemics, varying availability of medical care across the globe, the development and administration of antivirals and vaccines, and morbidity, mortality, and insurance losses by sex and age cohort. This results in an accurate and probabilistic view of disease spread across different segments of the human population. So in sum, our probabilistic pandemic model provides risk managers, insurers, and public health officials with a comprehensive understanding of potential morbidity and mortality, as well as life and health insurance losses before an outbreak occurs and in real time as a pandemic spreads. Now for a use case. The World Bank's Pandemic Emergency Financing Facility, or PEF, aims to insure the world's poorest countries against the threat of a pandemic. It's the first ever insurance market for pandemic risk. The PEF's insurance window will provide coverage up to $500 million for an initial period of three years for outbreaks of infectious diseases most likely to cause major epidemics. The PEF was built and designed by the World Bank in collaboration with the World Health Organization and the private sector, including my company. The analytic structure we developed and our pandemic model that the PEF employs have been described by the World Bank as the bedrock of the program. So how does the PEF operate? Well, the facility will release funds quickly to countries and or international response organizations to accelerate the response, saving lives and reducing human suffering. By mobilizing an earlier, faster, better planned and coordinated response, it should reduce the overall cost to countries for their people uh, as well as response and recovery. The World Bank also hopes that the PEF will promote greater global national investments in preparing for future outbreaks and strengthening national health systems. How might this benefit society? Well, the World Bank estimates that the PEF had existed in mid-2014 as the Ebola outbreak was spreading rapidly in West Africa. It could have mobilized an addition, the initial $100 million as early as July to severely limit the spread and severity of the epidemic. Instead, the money at that scale did not begin to flow until three months later. During that three-month period, the number of Ebola cases increased tenfold. The Ebola epidemic has claimed more than 11,000 lives and cost $10 billion to date. Three policy recommendations. 
As demonstrated by the World Bank's West Africa Ebola outbreak, a slow response can impede outbreak containment. Funding rapidly flowing to an, after an outbreak will slow the spread of disease. You don't want to be in a situation where the affected populations and governments are waiting for assistance. Waiting till an outbreak becomes a pandemic will have a huge cost to society. Thus, an identified and rapidly dispersing fund is necessary. Two, I spoke about catastrophe modeling. This is, uh, which is a best practice in the insurance industry, but it's virtually unknown to the public sector. This is unfortunate because it's directly relevant to the Commission's focus. For example, in the same way the insurance industry uses catastrophe models to set aside capital for potential losses from pandemics and other man-made and natural disasters, so too can catastrophe models inform biodefense budgeting. And finally, consider insurance-based solutions. Insurance and reinsurance can reduce financial burden of man-made and natural disasters on society. Insurance-linked securities, including catastrophe bonds, are an insurance hybrid that transfer risk to capital markets. These instruments can be developed for local, state, federal, and international organizations, such as what I described today with the World Bank. This concludes my statement, and I'm happy to take any questions. A couple of quick questions, if I might. Uh, Linda, kind of curious when you were talking about uh, the length of time between uh, being asked to provide these non-medical countermeasures, which is a nice way of putting it, and the ability to provide them. Are you at all, is your industry at all involved in pre-positioning any of these in this, the strategic stockpiles? Um, there are, we do have members who have some contracts with, with the government. I think the problem, though, is, is a lot of those, I think, are older thinking around contingency funds, and there are, there's not always the dollars that match up. Sometimes you don't know what the demand is until it's too late. And I think our ability to ramp up and then deliver what we're, what we're, we're on the hook for is, in reality, not meshing very well, if that makes sense. And so in terms of the predisposition, Pre-positioning themselves, no. I mean, the stockpile does its own logistics from that perspective. In terms of, you mean like the caches that they have across the country? Is that what you're? Getting? Well, no. I mean, we do pre-position stuff. I'm just, I'm not worried about the distribution of what's in the stockpile, okay. but the non-medical countermeasures. If it takes six months to deliver right. more of the matters you have, so that's I'm just curious. You don't have a surge capacity apparently, so I'm just right. curious. The simple as to answer not is is not exactly, and I think that's since we keep dodging these bullets, has triggered all this conversations right. to have that ability to help that better. What quick question to you, Jeff, if I might. Um, there's been much discussion today about maybe bringing the Stafford Act and some of the, applying that in certain areas, and I was struck by that notion. And uh, as governor, there were times that people wanted me to provide, ask for a national disaster recommend it. And, you know, there has to be a threshold. Yeah. You just can't. Yes. There are a lot of bad things that happen on it on a, around the state, but not everything it rises to a threshold where you ought to get a, an emergency declaration. Has, have you and the folks at Columbia even thought about if you're going to frame a national, a, a declaration for a national public health emergency, what those parameters would be, what those thresholds would be before a governor or somebody could a governor could apply for a, a disaster declaration, and if we beat, beefed up FEMA, getting the requisite response, have you, have you even thought about framing that? Uh, in the initial stages, yeah. I mean, this notion of a public health emergency response fund is, is relatively new in the current dialogue. Not the and, fund. But, but then, okay. yeah, yeah. Framing but, what you 
the nature of the disaster before you can even apply right, for it. Right, right. And that's where we sort of got into that is where what is the trigger to access the fund and through the, de the emergency declaration process. And I think part of it is that is that we need to go back and do some homework on what the current declaration process allows and doesn't allow. It's also hosted with the Secretary of HHS, whereas for the Stafford Act, it's hosted with the Office of the President. So where should that decision-making occur? Should it occur at the presidential level or at the, the uh, cabinet level in terms of making that and the criteria in terms of expected cost. We have had conversations with local partners as well, too, where they've ramped up in anticipation of outbreaks overseas like Ebola and like Zika and like others. And, and Ebola had, had far more ramp up than actual impact that was experienced. And yet there were a lot of costs that, that were uh, unable to be reimbursed, that they're just constantly on the hook for. And so that's in some of those discussions where we we're talking about sort of pre-disaster declarations. But it's sort of skirting around your question. And I think the short answer is that more work does need to be done to define that structure because that's going to be the cr uh, critical to the success of any kind of emergency response. would be very interested in any any thoughts and specific recommendations you made in terms of framing. If there was to be a sure. presidential public health emergency declaration, what it might be from your perspective. Secretary sure. Shalala? Um, I have three quick questions for each one of them. First, uh, for Dan, um, I know about uh, cat modeling. Does it include the capacity of the country to handle the disease? Because in the Nigeria case, we had infrastructure. Um, and, and I'm wondering how far uh, cat modeling has gone in Nigeria. It's a great question, and indeed, indeed it does. Uh, so the same way we understand the exposure to commercial and residential buildings for our hurricane model, we have to also understand exposure, in this case, human uh, life, as well as the medical and other types of infrastructure in those host countries. So yes, it, it does explicitly consider those. Correct. So um, the emergency fund could, it, it sounded to me like you had masks on your shelves forever. We did. That means that they could just purchase and then figure out a distribution system. Well, those were on our shelves and my yeah. members, so it wasn't in the stockpile itself. They could actually warehouse that. Right. Some of it, yes. I think problem is when you think about the expiration, and then when you think about, are you building it all at once? Are you going to kind of stagger it? And if any sort of mass event needs so many numbers at once, I think we're trying to figure out what is that number, and then to kind of get to your point, do they stockpile it? Does what we have help? And what does that mean together? Yeah, but some of the early discussions were to stockpile in the VA where it would be mm -hmm. used, but you j simply used an extensive, a much more extensive purchasing process. Right. Or, or in major public hospitals, for example. But in a distribution system that would cover the country, simply order more and then keep it uh, up to date. Right. Okay. Um, and then... Um, Jeff, um, you talked about public-private partnerships a little bit, but the major public-private partnership in public health is the tracking system for diseases and for the out uh, because individual doctors call their state uh, their state to report a breakout of a foodborne disease or an mm -hmm. or an infection, and that's the way we capture it. Yes. So we really do have an infrastructure for the private sector we've invested in a tracking system that makes a difference. 
Uh, to a certain extent, I agree. A lot of state and localities, it's, it's done differently, and in some cases, it's still using the fax machine, and so the ability to aggregate and describe data and generate insights from that data, I think, is where we could use a lot more um, private sector ingenuity, particularly when it comes to uh, business intelligence systems and the creation of operational dashboards. I think there's, in a, I think we're pretty good, as you mentioned, with the, the reporting process, but then actually being able to analyze trends and impacts and integrate into models and create insights into the response. There, yeah, the other thing is, I didn't understand Ron Klain's, the problem that we had um, calling everybody who had been in West Africa, because during the AIDS epidemic, we called everybody that had AIDS and asked them who their partners were. Yeah, and I, which is a lot more people. Yeah, and that's an important point that on how much the uh, the workload exponentially increases as you get down to the state and the local level, and that's where although we sort of look for national level investments, really bringing to scale the nuts and bolts of how to how to deal with a widespread epidemic. I think it's a fair point that that um, we sort of have an inverted structure where we have a lot of national level resources, but we've seen local level resources really diminished over the years. Right. But that's where most right. of that work needs to yeah. occur. And this committee has tried to balance yes. the need for local resources and local investments with, you know, the federal, the obvious federal role. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Two quick uh, comments. One, when uh, Tom and I were in Atlanta last week for this conference, I guess we knew about it before, but there was really strong feeling that the, the absence of a, an adequate, uh, essentially advanced funding emergency fund at the national level meant that during a crisis like Ebola, when inevitably the government will want to have money to show the public that they're responding, money is um, cannibalized. And so local uh, public health uh, departments and emergency preparedness units lost out. So I, I just wanted to, I, I know you know that, Jeff, but um, I wanted to say that to build on your argument for emergency funding. Secondly, uh, Ms. O'Neill, just to say really briefly, um, which I'm sure you know too, that one of the major reforms of FEMA post-Katrina was that it was pre-positioning and developing capacity to move what's necessary in a crisis, whether it's a hurricane or a tornado or whatever, to the area, which they were woefully, I mean, we, we did, uh, Susan, Senator Collins and I did hearings on this, and uh, it was amazing how much better prepared, for instance, Walmart and Home Depot were for Katrina than the U.S. government was. Um, uh, Dr. Kanuski, in your modeling, do, do you do probability of uh, pandemic disease outbreaks? We do. So we're all under the, we all say and believe that it's inevitable that there will be another big infectious disease pa pandemic. Do, do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, we have, like I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of scenarios that are completely plausible. Right. That may or may not have happened yet. And if we're not considering those plausible scenarios that we haven't seen in our lifetime, then we're putting ourselves at risk. Yeah. And are, is it more likely than the obviously wildly unforeseen uh, Spanish flu uh, uh, outbreak in 1918? It, it's certainly plausible that there could be pandemics on a scale greater than what we have seen yeah. in our lifetimes. Be, in part because of what we all know, we're traveling more, 
more movement, yeah. Absolutely, the virulence of the diseases or the travel patterns, all of those variables are considered in our model and there are definitely some worst case scenarios that we could create for you. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Questions from our colleagues on the Hicks Physio panel. Doctor, please. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> on the private-public uh, uh, partnership, uh, <clears throat> the emphasis on education and the role of education to raise the awareness. In a way, the light at the end of the tunnel in the past three years is um, a growing interest on the part of uh, governments, for example, State Department, uh, as well as international organization, NATO, OECE, uh, WHO, and others to work together with um, educational institutions, uh, universities, think tanks. So for the past three years, some of us are developing a curriculum that can be used for undergraduate, graduate, um, security uh, institutes, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, in order to raise uh, the awareness and, uh, and knowledge. So um, I, I really think this uh, has to be uh, encouraged and uh, bring in uh, different segments of the society, including not only public um, health institutes such as uh, yours at Columbia, but also schools of journalism, for example, how to report about uh, the situation in order to avoid the panic, for example, in the public. Yeah, and, and I, we agree with that completely at our center. We're forming actually a partnership with the School of Journalism and their Center on Disaster Response because we recognize how important uh, attention to these issues and shining a light on them actually makes it relevant in the political circles and also the connections with uh, uh, business measures and being able to answer business questions um, when we're primarily equipped to answer scientific questions is also an incredible, uh, incredibly important hurdle to overcome in order to continue to get traction on these issues. So I, I completely agree with what you said. And, and great to hear that so much is going on with that. So Dan, uh, I happen to believe like you that large scale simulation modeling can contribute much. But we also heard, and there are skeptics as you well know, so CDC was offering us a million people infected with Ebola. Had you run at the same time simulations that ended up with an endpoint which was much similar to what the outcome was? I will say that we have, uh, again, all of our scenarios are developed ahead of time. So we have those hundreds of thousands of scenarios. And I, would, I will say that we have, in technical terms, similar stochastic events that show that it could have been much worse than what we experienced. And importantly, insurers consider all of these scenarios as non-zero probabilities of occurring. If they said it was zero and it occurred, they'd go bankrupt. So the insurance industry consider this, considers those scenarios as non-zero probabilities, then so, should, so too should the government. Absolutely, but on the probabilistic scale that you're working with, so my question was, did you have proactive models 
that ended up much closer to less than 20,000 deaths versus a, a million. Right. I can't speak exactly what we had uh, during that outbreak, but uh, I can, I'm happy to run that model and show you the output. Anything else, please? There you go. Thank you. Um, so these are really about the insurance questions. And um, so one, um, I didn't hear, you know, we know a lot of these outbreaks, pandemics, the cost or the losses are mostly non-medical. So in these projections, 80, 90%, tenfold is the economic impact for business and other things. So are you including those is my kind of first question. Mm -hmm. So we've just seen recently with Zika, 80% of the cost of Zika have nothing to do with medical care, but travel, tourism. I'm sure that you're covering that. Um, the second question, and maybe you can help with this is, um, and you know, you always recognize the pioneers because they have the arrows in their back. So forgive me for like shooting in your back on this for being a pioneer. Um, but the work with the World Bank on this pandemic insurance, uh, my understanding, and we work a lot with the bank, is that the cost of those policies will be borne by other parties, donor countries, like the United States will put in money to cover the policy cost for poor countries. And there's no um, pricing, like my insurance, I price on risk, they don't have to do anything to mitigate risk in order to get their insurance coverage. So I'm a little concerned about the bank's plan, which is an incentive not to do anything. Um, and also it doesn't pay out until they reach a threshold like $100 million. So a government leader in a small country in some part of the world can let things run out because at 50 million they get nothing, but if they let it go until it's 100 million, then they, get, they win 100 million from the fund. Um, so that we have some concerns about how that's developing. I wonder if you might have access to influence the bank. We're certainly trying to, but as they say, well, we have to start somewhere, um, but we're hoping they go further than starting somewhere. Sure. Both excellent questions. Uh, the first is that our primary clients for our pandemic model are the insurance industry. So they care about insured losses. So primarily that's life and health. Right, so that is the, the, the primary, our primary clients uh, want that output. That said, we can model and do model other elements that you're talking about. Uh, what comes to mind first would be business interruption. So business interruption insurance will reflect a lot of those costs that you talked about. But uh, it's clear that there are economic costs even beyond that that could be modeled, but we don't have any clients from the insurance industry that are asking us to actively model that because it's not an insured loss. Uh, on the PEF with the World Bank specifically, first I have to caveat this by saying I'm not an employee of the World Bank. Uh, I'm a vendor to the World Bank and I also have an active contract with them so I can't get into specific details about what we're doing with them. But I will say that remember that this is focused on the poorest countries in the world that may not have the ability to fund uh, any efforts on their own and the World Bank, I, I believe, uh, thinks that by providing this immediate funding, the world, the other member nations can come together and stop that, that outbreak from becoming a pandemic through the use of funding those immediate, funding immediate needs. 
It may not be perfect, uh, but it's something. And I will say that our firm in particular has been very engaged in helping the World Bank uh, determine triggers, like when, you know, when does an outbreak, when should an outbreak qualify for funding? And in my view, as, as an emergency manager, this is a really innovative program because it's not often in my field that you can uh, see a disaster happening in front of uh, your eyes and a trigger will, uh, can, can have an immediate impact and lessen the consequences in such a dramatic way. So I think there's real potential there, and I think it's very innovative, but I understand certainly your concerns about the need for clarity of, these, uh, of some of these items, including mitigation and triggers, and I can, I can say that those are active discussions right now, and, and not in all cases have been uh, final, you know, final decisions been made. I'm going to forewarn you, as we did the previous panel, um, once you've testified, we keep the record open for at least a year. <laughs> Don't be surprised to hear from us. And I'm going to encourage you folks, we're running a little bit late, but the uh, individual we asked to speak next is, is worthy of another 15 or 20 minutes of your time. And uh, once the panel uh, uh, leaves us, we're going to have uh, Max Brooks uh, share some thoughts with you. Many may be familiar with his uh, critically acclaimed novel, World War Z, uh, which is a fascinating look into our world, uh, but more importantly is a non-resident fellow of the Modern War, Modern War Institute at West Point. Uh, senior resident fellow, Art of Future Warfare Project at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security at the Atlantic Council. Uh, so I'm going to uh, ask this uh, author and scholar Max Brooks, please join us. Thank you. I will be brief. Uh, I, have, I have sat here, sat there for a good 12 to 13 hours, and I've listened to a lot of experts, and all of them geniuses. What I haven't heard is a way to communicate and engage the public. And I think that this would be wonderful in isolation if we lived in a country with a permanent ruling class that could take care of the big issues and let the rest of us peasants go on and live our lives. But we don't, we live in a republic. We live in a democratic society where public engagement, public support, public cooperation is paramount. And I haven't heard anything about that is how do you deal with the mass psychology of boomeranging between denial and panic? Because that's how society works. You're either in complete denial where you think, well, this doesn't affect me, or you're in complete panic where you think, oh my God, I need to put a bucket on my head and shoot at anybody who comes near my door. And I've lived through all of that. And I can tell you that we are now in full denial mode. And we are in full denial mode for many reasons. Some of it are short-term, some of them are long-term. Part of it is long-term because, let's be honest, uh, we've made a conscious effort in this country since the 1960s to avoid uh, hyperactivity on the part of the citizenry. We don't want this country tearing itself apart like we did in the 60s. So we've had this sort of divorce of overactivism. Uh, part of it was the end of the Cold War where we literally thought, well, I mean, I think there was some moron who called it the end of history. And whoever that person was, find who they are and punch them in the face. Uh, 
because it was not the end of history. Things were going to still happen to us. But there was this attitude in the country that the Cold War is over, we can all go home, happy days are here again. Uh, part of it was, let's be honest, Iraq, where right after 9-11, we were involved. The American public jumped right back into the fray and were told, and this is direct quote, to pray, hug our kids, and participate in the economy. And that's it. That was all we were asked of. But we gave the government our full support because we were told that there was a country that had weapons of mass destruction that was coming here, and they didn't. And we cried wolf. And the public took it as such that if Saddam Hussein doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, therefore nobody does. And so we've gone from the hyper panic of 9-11 to complete denial where people don't want to be engaged at all. We have also successfully in my lifetime gone to war against science, gone to war against the news, gone to war against truth, to the point now that people are all living in their own bubbles and believing what they want to believe. And we are now reaping that whirlwind. And if we are going to protect ourselves, we need to get back to that. We need to get back to realizing that we all live in one country and that we are the people. We are the government, the American people. We govern ourselves. And so while we talk about logistics, we talk about science, we talk about the law, we talk about involvement in various government agencies, we also need to talk about how are we going to communicate these ideas to the American people. When I was a kid growing up in the firestorm of AIDS, what saved us was a guy dressed like him, a guy who looked like an Amish admiral. <laughs> and he had, he had a calm demeanor and a funny beard, and he went on TV constantly, and he woke us up and calmed us down. And make no mistake, that's how we beat AIDS in this country, with education. Still don't have a cure. But public education, engaging the American people, explaining AIDS is deadly serious, but it's preventable, and here's how. And that's how we did it. And so when there is another outbreak, and as we all know, it will happen, public education, public involvement is going to be as vital as any of the physical assets that we have at our command. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to get in the middle road between complete denial and outright panic? How are we going to bridge this partisan gap? Because let's be honest, this government, this government of the people, are acting like divorced parents, dividing up issues like their furniture. You know, you get that issue, I'll get that issue. But no, as we've said, germs affect all of us. Germs don't have voting records and party lines. So how is everybody going to come back? How are we going to confront the partisans on both sides of the aisle that are trying to tear us apart? And that is on both sides. You know, conservatives, when I hear this, I hear the conservative rhetoric of, well, this is big government bureaucracy. I don't want to have to pay for this. I also hear the liberal rhetoric of, well, I read on the internet somewhere that vaccinating my kids will give them three heads. And so therefore, I'm not going to do it. In my hometown of Santa Monica, California, 
was ground zero of the measles outbreak. These are educated people. These are people who thought they were so elite, and yet they weren't vaccinating their children. Well, where was the guy dressed like him to tell us, no, you need to do this? You know who did it? Jimmy Kimmel, a talk show host, actually had doctors on his show who, pardon my language, literally direct quote came on and said, vaccinate your goddamn kid. And that woke people up because that has to happen because in a way we're also victims of our own success. You know, none of us now have to worry that if our child has a, a headache or a fever tonight, that they're gonna wake up with polio. We can all sit down and have salad, raw vegetables from a restaurant, knowing that it's not going to kill us. You know, 100 years ago, we fought tooth and nail to combat the viruses that used to murder and maim millions of Americans. And we've done it so well, we're three generations out that things like the word polio is something that your grandparents talk about. So how do we remind them? How do we remind the American people, no, 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 these viruses aren't extinct, they're not dinosaurs. They can come back and they can affect us all. And all of us need to respond. That's all I'm gonna say. Does anyone dare seek to offer a question? <laughs> Chairman, I, I would like to follow up on one thing that, that Max said. your own peril. Go ahead, Senator. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 first of all, let me just compliment those. you on, on an eloquent and passionate statement, and you can see from the reaction how much in agreement we are. But I think the big challenge we face in this era of fake news and allegations of of, uh, of, of fake news is discerning fact from fiction. And whether it's measles and vaccinations or climate change or any one of an array of things, our people, the people of this country and the world today are faced with an enormous challenge of, of discerning truth from fiction and fact from, from the unrealities of, of rhetoric. You, you obviously have thought about this a great deal. How are we gonna get out of this mess, this dilemma that we're facing today as we have a president of the United States, in some cases, who makes assertions that I would challenge, and I think most people do. So how do, how do we deal with that? I, I think, honestly, I think that, that elected officials need to have the courage to confront partisans that might have been useful to their political careers at some point. There does have to be what I call the John McCain moment when Senator McCain was running for president and that woman talked about uh, Senator Obama and said he's, a, uh, he's an Arab. And you could see where McCain's soul came forward and said, no, no, he's not. And that courage was matched by General Powell, who then went public and said, what if he was? So what? Is there something wrong with a Muslim kid in this country thinking one day I can be president? Now, these are Republicans taking on elements of the Republican base who might have been very helpful to them at the risk of their own reputations and their own careers. And that kind of courage as Americans is what we need. That's what we all need. You know, I would say this, this happened in, I believe it was the 1960s when the Republican Party took on the John Birch Society and said, no, 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 we're not, we're not part of you. 
we're here for all Americans, and we need to do that. When, when Jenny McCarthy talks about not vaccinating your kids, it is the role of liberals and Democrats to confront her and say, no, 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 you are not a scientist. You take your clothes off for a living. Good for you. But that does not qualify you to tell me not to give my child a vaccination. Thank you, Max. Well, I, I think that uh, we should buy you a uniform. <laughs> Ask you to grow a beard. And there's an important role for you in America's future. Thank you. Surgeon General Brooks. <laughs> oh, we'll waive that. <laughs> Uh, you, you've been great. You're, you're really, uh, I mean, the, the Paul Revere metaphor is overdone, but uh, you've played that role today. And we but I can't think of a more fitting and appropriate uh, conclusion of this uh, first of several meetings we're going to have this year. Uh, we all in this panel, the ex officio members, we've had a pretty, uh, pretty regular attendance and sustained commitment from a lot of people in this, uh, in, in this uh, theater today. Uh, to your point, as we discussed with you and others, how we elevate the notion this is a real threat, it is a real risk, let's not ignore that reality. Let's also not ignore the reality with the right approach, with the right public policy, we can manage it just like we manage everything else. So let's accept that reality. And I also remind you, there was a great lesson uh, last uh, two years ago, the, the Allegheny College in my old congressional district, they give a civility award every, two, every year. Two years ago, they gave it to John McCain for that moment. And you know who his counterpart was on the other side? Vice President Joe Biden. When uh, a nominee for president said the, enemy, the Republicans are enemies, he said, no, 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 no. They're not your enemies. They're your opponents. So we got a lot of work to do, elevate it, and uh, wish we could elevate it to the tone and the uh, focus that you just did for all of us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you.